The End of Mobility This remarkable social uplift, the great achievement of liberal capitalism, is now distinctly threatened, and with it, the long-term future of democracy. In the last four decades, the wealth gap between the rich and the middle class has grown to levels not seen since the dawn of the industrial era. In many countries, the income gap between the top 1% of the population and the remaining 99% is at an all-time high. In the United States, the historic heartland of middle-class aspiration, the chance of mid-range earners moving up to the top rungs of the income ladder has declined by approximately 20% since the early 1980s. But the diminishing of upward mobility is a global phenomenon. It is also occurring in sub-Saharan Africa and Russia, as well as Latin America and India. European countries renowned for their robust social welfare provisions are showing the same pattern. Social mobility has declined in over two-thirds of European Union countries, including Sweden. Germany is significantly less equal than its EU peers, with richer households controlling a bigger share of assets than in most other Western European states. The bottom 40% of German adults hold almost no assets at all. Barely 45% own homes. This trend is even more marked in the English-speaking world. In Great Britain, a decline in the numbers of middle-wage jobs has depressed wages at the lower end and increased unemployment among the young. More broadly, it has brought a halt to social mobility. We are facing a new set of problems, says Francis O'Grady, General Secretary of the once powerful Trades Union Congress. We have people with degrees doing Mickey Mouse jobs and young people who will have no occupational pension and no house to sell to see them through old age. In the United States, inequality decreased substantially in the first half of the 20th century, but has grown dramatically since the 1970s. The wealth differential between middle-income and upper-income households had reached unprecedented levels by 2015. Data from the Census Bureau show that the share of national income going to the middle 60% of households has fallen to a record low. Wealth gains in recent decades have gone overwhelmingly to the top 1% of households, and especially the top 0.5%. The property-owning middle class has never been monolithic, and today some have benefited from the increasing value of their homes. Those in the upper middle class who hold elite professional or managerial positions have done well, particularly in the older generation. Overall, the biggest winners from the largely asset-based prosperity following the Great Recession were those with large holdings of property or stocks, rather than Main Street businesses or ordinary homeowners. As one conservative economist put it succinctly in 2018, the economic legacy of the last decade is excessive corporate consolidation, a massive transfer of wealth to the top 1% from the middle class. In the United States, an affluent class of roughly 1.35 million, the top 1%, is doing fine. But wealth gains have been especially concentrated among the top 0.1%, roughly 150,000 people. 
Since the mid-1980s, the share of national wealth held by those below the top 10% has fallen by 12 percentage points, the same proportion that the top 0.1% gained. The same trends are appearing in East Asia, which in the recent past showed the most dramatic growth in the size and prosperity of the middle class in the world. Since 1990, famously egalitarian Japan has seen not only a declining average standard of living, but also a considerable widening of the gap between the wealthy and everyone else. In China, egalitarian socialism may be the prevailing ideology, but the country is now more unequal than most Western nations. Its Gini Index, a measure of inequality, has gone from highly egalitarian in 1978 to more stratified than Mexico, Brazil, or Kenya, as well as the United States and virtually all of Europe. The nascent middle class made some progress, but the big gains occurred in the top 1% of the population, and particularly in a tiny fraction of that group. The income of the ultra-wealthy expanded by more than twice the national average rate. Middle-class Chinese people now find it difficult to buy property or get ahead. Discouraging Democracy The earliest democracies in Athens and Rome rested on an assertive property-owning middle class. Aristotle warned about the dangers of an oligarchy that would control both the economy and the state. In fact, an ever greater consolidation of wealth played a role in undermining Greek democracy and the citizen-led Roman Republic. By the end of the Republic, over 75% of all property was owned by roughly 3% of the population, while over four-fifths owned no property. The political economy that would define the Middle Ages had roots in imperial Rome, when small farmers and artisans were being displaced by slaves imported from the far ends of the expanding empire. Occupations and social status came to be determined by heredity. The middle ranks of citizens, whom Gibbon called the most respectable part of the community, were burdened by debt. A growing portion of the citizenry, unable to feed themselves or find honest work, subsisted on state-sponsored bread and circuses. In the late Roman Empire, 300,000 Romans held bread tickets. The backbone of the race publica had become something of a proletarian mob. In the feudal era, most people labored in fields they did not own, and most were illiterate. The idea of self-government for the masses would have seemed absurd, even sacrilegious, and was barely even considered. A comeback of democracy depended principally on a property-owning middle class and on respect for commercial enterprise, which was widely viewed as ignoble in the Middle Ages. A growing commercial economy, first in Italy and the Low Countries, would help fuel the growth of an assertive middle class in Western Europe. But the same did not happen everywhere, even in countries that became wealthy and powerful. Chinese culture was long defined by the values of the Mandarins, who generally despised the commercial class. In the 11th century, Xia Sung portrayed merchants as being infected with greed and love of luxury and complained that peasants were diverted away from honest agricultural work to seek an idle living by trade. 
Such prejudices were reinforced with heavy taxes and regulatory burdens on entrepreneurs, while the central state established monopolies over key commodities such as salt, iron, and wine. The social status of entrepreneurs remained low well into the modern era, which clearly impeded China's progress toward an industrial revolution. Chinese entrepreneurship flourished mostly on the imperial periphery or outside the boundaries of the empire, often in places controlled by European powers. The Mandarin class and the great landowning families continued to dominate Chinese society, while the strength of family loyalties and obligations left little room for a sense of individual rights. Aristocracy remained commonplace across Asia, at least until the American occupation in Japan and the communist revolutions in China, Vietnam, and elsewhere. The aristocratic and clerical establishments exercised a strong control over social life. In China, innovative merchants and artisans did not dare challenge the class system, but instead accepted its Mandarin values. The class hierarchy was, if anything, more oppressive in India, with its strictly defined closed castes. The vaisyas, or non-servile commoners, were considered inferior to the priestly, Brahmin, and warrior, Kshatriya, castes, and were subject to imperial confiscations, which discouraged business investment and expansion. One of the authors of India's constitution in the 20th century, B. R. Ambedkar, who came from the lowest caste, the Dalits, said he feared Brahmin repression of enterprise more than anything that might have come from British colonialists. Even in parts of Europe and its colonies, the persistence of feudal attitudes slowed the rise of a middle class and of democracy. Spain conquered much of the world, but nevertheless stagnated both economically and socially under a system that the 17th century economist Martin González de Salarigo described as one dividing society between rich who loll at ease or poor who beg, lacking people of the middling sort whom neither wealth in land nor poverty prevents from pursuing the rightful kind of business enjoined by natural law. In the New World, the customs and values of old Castile were grafted onto Spanish colonies, suggested Robert D. Crassweller. In Mexico and Argentina, for example, society was dominated by the Catholic Church and a well-off leisured class supported by vast numbers of slaves and semi-slaves. The legacy of this economic and social order would discourage the growth of democratic institutions over the long term. Even today, land ownership in Latin America is highly concentrated, which is one reason why the middle class has been so weak and authoritarian politics so pervasive. The Development of Western Democracy In most of Western Europe, aristocratic and ecclesiastical domination of land ownership gave way to a more individualistic concept of property rights. A substantial class of independent smallholders developed and began to demand the rudiments of constitutional order and self-governance. Artisans and merchants practiced an early form of self-governance within their guilds. It was the ascendant middle class, willing to challenge the aristocracy and even the clergy, that drove democratic reform. As the radical social theorist Barrington Moore said a half-century ago, no bourgeois, no democracy.
To be sure, the Western progress toward more democratic governance did not at first give equal rights to all. Far from it. Prosperity came partly at the expense of indigenous peoples and European colonies, including those of the Dutch and the British. Belgium's control of the Congo was particularly heinous, with the use of forced labor from the native residents to serve a small European minority of crony capitalists and government administrators. American success was built in part on the destruction of indigenous cultures and a revival of the abhorrent practice of slavery. But these democratic countries were not unique in their cruelty. Other colonial expansionists, such as the Russians, the Qing Chinese, and the Japanese, were typically far from gentle. Moreover, the places once colonized by Western nations have generally benefited from the legacy of liberal capitalism. The democratic liberal spirit thrives, albeit under greater pressure, in both Hong Kong and India, for example, as well as those places that grew under the influence of the United States, such as South Korea and Taiwan. Democratic capitalism brought widely shared prosperity to a large part of the world. But today a new generation, in the United States and much of the high-income world, faces diminishing prospects of owning land or advancing into a comfortable middle-class life. Instead of a progressive, woke, egalitarian age, we may be entering an era that is more feudal in its economic and social structure. Chapter 11 A Lost Generation Young people do not degenerate. This occurs only after grown men have already become corrupt, wrote Montesquieu in the 18th century. Our children may take this statement to heart when they find that their elders are leaving them with a poorer future. Three-quarters of American adults today are not confident that their children will be better off than themselves. A Pew poll in 2017 found that parents are more likely to think their children will be financially worse off than themselves rather than better off. In the United States, a country built on aspiration, the fading prospects for the new generation are painfully obvious. About 90% of those born in 1940 grew up to earn higher incomes than their parents, according to researchers at the Equality of Opportunity Project. The same is true for only 50% of those born in the 1980s. Baby boomers enjoyed an era of a rising middle class, but millennials inherit a world in which the middle class is struggling almost everywhere, notes the OECD. According to a recent study by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, millennials are in danger of becoming a lost generation in terms of wealth accumulation. The generational shift could have a profound effect on our economic, political, and social order. Compared with their parents, young people today are more likely to have a future with no substantial assets or property. A Deloitte study projects that millennials in the United States will hold barely 16% of the nation's wealth in 2030, when they will be the largest adult generation by far. Gen Xers, the preceding generation, will hold 31%, while boomers entering their 80s and 90s will still control 45% of the nation's wealth. A recent analysis of Federal Reserve data shows that young Americans with a college degree today 
earn about the same on average as boomers without a degree did at the same age. While an elite degree opens doors to the upper strata of society, the same is far from true of all college degrees. Upwards of 40% of recent college graduates now work in jobs that don't typically require a college degree. The economic prospects of individuals now depend greatly on their year of birth, with the younger cohorts generally doing worse than earlier generations. It is no surprise that recent college graduates report the highest levels of anxiety in the country and that Americans in the post-millennial generation, or Generation Z, are the most likely to embrace socialistic views. The same pattern appears in virtually every advanced country. The Pew Research Center found that poll respondents in France, Britain, Spain, Italy, and Germany are even more pessimistic about the next generation than those in the United States. Pessimism about the next generation is also widespread in important developing countries, such as India, South Africa, and Nigeria. Among the most pessimistic countries, however, is Japan, where three-quarters of those polled believe that things will be worse for the next generation. The Decline of Home Ownership During the mid-20th century, home ownership rates in the United States grew rapidly, from 44% in 1940 to 63% 30 years later. Now the trend is in the opposite direction. According to Census Bureau data, the rate of home ownership among young adults at ages 25 to 34 was 45.4% for Generation X, but dropped to 37% for millennials. Similar trends are seen in other high-income countries. Australia historically has had high rates of home ownership, but the rate among those 25 to 34 years old dropped from more than 60% in 1981 to only 45% in 2016. The proportion of owner-occupied housing has dropped by 10% in the last 25 years. A trend toward long-term rentership has also been found in Ireland. In the United Kingdom, only a third of millennials own a home, compared with almost two-thirds of baby boomers at the same age. In the 1960s, those born before the Second World War spent 8% of their income on housing, but millennials now spend almost a quarter. British millennials today, on average, will need 19 years to save for a home deposit. It took only three years in the 1980s. A third of millennials, according to projections, will have a lifetime of renting, with less space, poorer conditions, often longer commutes, and more insecurity than the baby boomers experienced. A report in 2018 found twice as many British millennials living in rental housing than their Gen X predecessors. At least one-third of British millennials are likely to remain renters for life. The trend seems likely to spread to China, which for the last three decades has seen vigorous growth in home ownership. Now, in the face of soaring property prices, many children of the working class and even the middle class will probably not be able to achieve homeowner status. A growing percentage of all apartments are rentals, particularly in the large cities such as Beijing and Shanghai. Most young Chinese people may be destined to pay rent to the landowning class, rather than own a piece of the pie themselves.
The New Real Estate Feudalism Some pundits have suggested that the decline of home ownership is a reflection of changing preferences among younger people. This notion is repeatedly asserted by orthodox elements of the clerisy, urban planners, social pundits, liberal intellectuals. It is echoed by investors who seek to create a rentership society where people remain renters for life, enjoying their video games or attending to their houseplants, never knowing the pleasure of having a real garden or backyard of their own. Such a plan could assure a steady profit for the landlord class, but would destroy the dream of ownership for the average person. In reality, most young people in advanced countries tell surveyors that they desire a single-family home, as did their elders. The problem is policies, notably in California, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia. Regulating land use in ways that elevate the price of real estate beyond the reach of far too many people. In some places, there are distinct moves to make single-family homes all but impossible to build. Virtually all regions of the world with the highest home prices have regulations designed to encourage development in the inner urban rings and discourage or even ban construction on the more affordable periphery. In Australia, these rules have raised housing prices by $100,000 or more. Policies to restrict development, particularly on the urban periphery, are sometimes justified by invoking a lack of developable space. But even in the relatively crowded United Kingdom, only 6% of the land is urbanized, while barely 3% of the United States is urbanized. The figure is 0.2% in Canada and less than 0.3% in Australia. We are seeing an artificial shortage of developable space, which generates wealth for current homeowners while making it far harder for younger people to own property. In places that have high population densities, the situation is even worse. In Hong Kong, where housing prices have tripled in the past decade, some 210,000 middle-class and working-class residents now live in tiny spaces, some described as hardly bigger than a coffin, in illegally subdivided apartments. It is easy to blame a shortage of space, but here, too, there are policies that control land use for the benefit of local government and powerful speculators. One critic of these policies, Alice Poon, in Land and the Ruling Class in Hong Kong, accurately labels it a feudalistic system. Kenneth Tong, a 34-year-old academic researcher living with his parents, compares his generation's predicament to playing a game of monopoly that has been going on for 50 years, and all the property is taken. If you continue to play this game, he says, the disparity between rich and poor will be wider, and more and more people will live in abysmal conditions. Inheritance makes a comeback. In the emerging neo-feudal world, the older generations benefit from rising home values and rental income, as do the well-heeled institutional investors. But their good fortune needs to be weighed against the shrinking prospects for a younger generation, who face a formidable challenge in boosting their net worth and escaping serf status. Homes today account for roughly two-thirds of the wealth of middle-income Americans, and homeowners have a median net worth 
roughly 80 times that of renters, according to the Census Bureau. In this new order, inherited wealth will make a comeback, writes Thomas Piketty. Inheritance as a share of GDP in France grew from roughly 4% in 1950 to 15% in 2010. Millennials who received bequests inherited more money than many workers make in a lifetime. The growing importance of inherited assets is even more pronounced in Germany, Britain, and the United States. In the next generation, inheritance may play a bigger role in the social order than it has since the 19th century. The children of property-owning parents are far better situated to own a house eventually, often with parental help, and enter what one writer calls the funnel of privilege. In America, a country with a national mythology that looks askance at inherited wealth, millennials are three times as likely as boomers to count on inheritance for their retirement. Among the youngest cohort, those ages 18 to 22, over 60% see inheritance as their primary source of sustenance as they age. Back to steady state? Some people see the diminishing prospects for property ownership as a long-overdue rejection of middle-class materialism. The environmental magazine Grist envisioned a hero generation that will escape the material trap of suburban living and work that ensnared their parents. This view is popular among the elite clerisy, particularly the green advocates. It also holds appeal for the rentier class, which Piketty calls the enemy of democracy, as they would be assured of steady profits by collecting rents while the middle class loses independence. The younger generations, increasingly destined to be without property of their own, are even losing ownership of their personal data. They hand over large amounts of personal information, often unknowingly, to big tech firms in exchange for free services. Rather than the much-ballyhooed sharing economy, we are seeing an economy based on mining personal data for the benefit of a few companies. In this way, the middle class will become digital serfs in what Gaspar Koenig calls digital feudalism. Chapter 12. Culture and Capitalism Close ties and common goals shared between a powerful, wealthy class and a priestly or intellectual class have shaped many cultures throughout history, including the feudal era. Today, a symbiosis between the economic oligarchy and the clerisy poses the biggest threat to the future of the middle class, as it serves to promote values and advance policies harmful to their well-being. The link between business and the clerisy in modern times is especially strong in China, where businesses take advantage of their ties to decision-makers in government. The Chinese scholar Zhou Shaohong suggests that these two classes together control most of the country's wealth. After all, nearly 40% of private entrepreneurs also belong to the Communist Party. In the West, entrepreneurs have historically tended to be a force for liberalization and for limiting the power of entrenched aristocracies and clerical elites, since commerce desires to be free, in the words of the 17th-century Dutch economist Peter de la Kurt. By contrast, leading oligarchs in today's tech and finance sectors are often inclined to support the heavy-handed progressive policies 
embraced by the dominant elements of the clerisy, as long as it doesn't threaten their own fortunes. Thus the real cultural power lies in the Brahmin left, to use Thomas Piketty's term. Post-Economic Goals Alvin Toffler predicted almost half a century ago that growing affluence would result in replacing the profit motive with more aesthetic goals, a quest for self-fulfillment or unbridled hedonism. Affluence serves as a base from which men begin to strive for post-economic goals, he wrote. The woke values of the upper classes are an example of such post-economic goals. Many business leaders, and the vast majority of students at the Harvard Business School, favor what the philosopher John Gray calls hyper-liberalism, defined as a mixture of bourgeois careerism with virtue-signaling self-righteousness. A large proportion of top CEOs see it as their responsibility to influence public attitudes and policy, rather than simply meet the needs of shareholders or serve customers. A kind of corporate vigilantism has appeal for some business leaders. The notion of social responsibility plays into advertising and CEO pronouncements in firms such as Audi, Gillette, Procter & Gamble, Nike, Apple, and Pepsi. To be sure, this might please some consumers while alienating many others. People in occupations like construction, the energy sector, or agriculture tend to favor less intrusive economic and social policies. On the other hand, well-educated managers of major companies and their technical staff are naturally attracted to the idea of a society ruled by professional experts with enlightened values, that is, by people much like themselves. This trend among corporate leaders brings the oligarchy closer to the elements of the clerisy, lawyers, academics, the media, that have long looked down on the middle orders. Rid society of the dictatorship of the middle class, the literary historian Vernon Parrington suggested in the late 1920s, and the artist and the scientist will erect in America a civilization that may become what civilization was in earlier days, a thing to be respected. The Green Class Order The Brahmin left and their allies in the oligarchy are in conflict with the yeomanry on environmental issues above all. In 1972, the influential book Limits to Growth was published with backing from major corporate interests, led by Aurelio Poche of Fiat. The author's long-term vision was based on the notion that the planet was running out of resources at a rapid pace. They called for establishing global equilibrium through restrictions on growth and a carefully controlled balance of population and capital. The goal was to end economic growth in the near future, which would effectively put an end to upward mobility as we have known it. The understandable concern over climate change today has tightened the alliance between the clerisy and the oligarchs. Non-profit foundations, depositories for old money, including that of the Fords and the Rockefellers, have become leading advocates of radical climate policies. Many of these policies are directly injurious to the middle class and working class by inflating energy and housing prices, for example, or by stifling industrial development. The oligarchs and the clerisy are generally better able to afford the costs of environmental radicalism. 
the ultra-wealthy are not much worried about high prices, while the clerisy typically are cloistered in institutions, such as academia, the media, or government, that are relatively unharmed by regulatory burdens. They can hector everyone else, writes the progressive author Anand Giridharadas, since they have continued to hoard the overwhelming share of progress, while the average American's life has scarcely improved. The wealthy can demand strict environmental policies to curb climate change because they can afford it, as long as the policies are not so radical as to restrict their ability to live in mansions or fly in private jets. By contrast, bans on fossil fuels would seriously harm an oil rigger, factory employee, or construction worker who drives an old truck to work. Some environmental zealots, such as The Guardian's environmental reporter George Monbiot, openly hope for a recession as a way to reduce carbon emissions, even if it causes people to lose their jobs and homes. For this reason, James Hartfield, a Marxist historian, says that green capitalism represents a new ruse for the upper classes to oppress those below them. The Brahmin left essentially employ a concern for global ecology to force the middle and working classes to absorb the costs of centrally imposed scarcity under the pretext of human survival. Literacy and Empowerment While the middle classes are being squeezed by policies they have had little ability to shape, their future is still largely within their own hands. But that depends on maintaining or recovering the values and habits that gave birth to a strong middle class, including literacy and a commitment to learning. In the middle of the 15th century, literacy rates in Europe were generally quite low, perhaps 5% overall in England, though substantially higher in cities and in the more urbanized societies of the Netherlands and Italy. Few women were literate. This changed dramatically after the introduction of the printing press, especially in the cities of northern Europe. By 1650, about half the British population could read. Literacy in the Netherlands soared to about 85% by 1750. A literate populace was better equipped to demand rights and oppose injustice, to understand written charters, and to organize effectively around a common program. Indeed, a few literate peasants may have had a leading part in the rebellions of the later Middle Ages. High rates of literacy in colonial America allowed traders and mechanics to spread the revolutionary message against the monarchy and help them organize their resistance, as Benjamin Franklin noted. In 20th century America, a literate culture was widely shared between cultural arbiters and the middle class. Average Americans in the 1950s were purchasing large numbers of classical works and books by contemporary authors such as Ruth Benedict and Saul Bellow. Many enjoyed watching Shakespeare plays on television, with one program attracting a remarkable 50 million viewers. That common culture is now fraying from both directions. Cultural creators are inclined to gear their products not so much to the tastes of the mass market as to the particular concerns of the clerisy. Television audiences for shows like the Academy Awards have been declining, especially among the young, as prizes rarely go anymore to quality films with broad popularity, such as West Side Story, The Sound of Music, or even the original Lord of the Rings. Instead, 
Award-winning films are chosen primarily for their appeal to insiders. At the same time, Hollywood makes most of its money from cartoonish superhero movies suited to a post-literate audience. Reading for enjoyment is in decline among the young today, as we have seen. Despite high rates of college attendance, cognitive skills seem to be weakening too. Many employers in the United States report difficulty finding workers capable of having a serious conversation. Over 60% of applicants are found to be lacking in basic social skills. Today's teens are becoming limited in their experiences to what they access on their phones and social media. Rather than opening minds, social media seem to be creating a generation with little ability to communicate in person. There are growing concerns about the effects of social media on the minds of young people. Sites like Facebook and Instagram have been linked to reduced attention span. Research indicates that the average attention span has fallen 50% since 2000, mainly due to social media use. Young people are turned into Internet addicts through marketing tactics, reminiscent of the much-denounced attempts of tobacco companies to hook teens on their product with subtle messaging. A former Facebook executive who was vice president for user growth, Chamath Palihapitiya, is now so worried about the influence of social media that he tries to keep his own children from too much exposure, as do some other tech executives. Palihapitiya warned that the social network is ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. The Nuclear Family Along with literacy, another characteristic of a successful bourgeois society historically was greater emphasis on the nuclear family rather than extended kin groups as the basic social unit. Motherhood was elevated in the cultural imagination, and a more tender regard was shown for children. Barbara Tuckman observed that medieval songs, folk tales, and literature often portrayed children being hunted, abandoned, drowned, or lost in the woods, at a time when barely half of children survived to adulthood. Women were cast mostly in the roles of flirts, bawds, and deceiving wives. The only strongly positive image of motherhood, said Tuckman, was that of the virgin mother. Despite the biblical command to be fruitful and multiply, singlehood was highly valued by the Catholic Church. St. Ambrose, the fourth-century bishop of Milan, considered the unmarried to be as the angels in heaven. During the Middle Ages, large numbers of talented people entered monasteries or convents, and the ideal of celibacy was enjoined upon the whole Catholic priesthood, which further depressed cultural as well as demographic vitality. As many as 15% of the population in pre-industrial Europe are estimated to have been permanently celibate. A more dynamic economy in the early modern period helped usher in new attitudes toward motherhood, children, and families. In cities like Amsterdam, the development of a prosperous liberal culture went hand-in-hand with a growing emphasis on the nuclear family as the fundamental cell of society and a driver of aspirations for social betterment. Simon Shama describes a republic of children built around the nuclear family. Many travelers to the Netherlands, he writes, were certainly surprised by the softness with which children were treated. The great paintings of the Dutch Golden Age 
illuminate this new domesticity. The medieval obsession with the Virgin Mother and the unrealistic cherubim typical of Renaissance painting were replaced with domestic images characterized by uncompromising earthiness. This familial focus played a critical role in the rise of democratic institutions. At the time of the American founding, family solidarity was widely considered essential to self-governance. Families provided succor and security, as well as the moral guidance required for living free from overbearing authority. John Adams wrote, The foundations of national morality must be laid in private families. Post-familialism Family culture is eroding today, especially in high-income countries. What is emerging is a post-familial society, in which marriage and family no longer play a central role. In the United States, the rate of single parenthood has grown from 10% in 1960 to over 40% today. In Britain, 8% of households in 1970 were headed by a single parent. Now the rate is over 25%. The percentage of children born outside marriage has doubled over the past three decades to 40%. Post-familial attitudes are, if anything, even more common in continental Europe. By 2000, more than half of births in Sweden were to unmarried women, though most of them cohabiting. The rates in most Western countries are trending the same way. While childbearing outside of marriage has become more commonplace, birth rates overall have declined. The percentage of American women who are mothers is at its lowest point in over three decades. Among the reasons suggested are the limited prospects for income and affordable housing for those now at the age of family formation. Many people have come to regard children as a luxury, since the costs associated with child-rearing, including school and housing, have risen far faster than incomes. This is true not only in the United States, but in virtually all wealthy countries, including those with extensive welfare states. In East Asia today, a powerful work culture appears to be undermining the long-existing familial culture. In Singapore, women work an average of 53 hours a week, observes Wolfgang Lutz, a demographer. Of course, they're not going to have children. They don't have the time. This echoes what Alvin Toffler in 1970 described as a growing immersion in work at the expense of family life. He envisioned a revolution in marriage that would result in a streamlined family relying on professional child raisers. The ideal of long-term marriage would give way, he expected, to more transient relationships and numerous partners at different stages of life. The old bourgeois emphasis on the importance of family is being replaced in many societies by a preference for single and unattached living. This trend was promoted by the rise of bohemianism in the 20th century, emphasizing individual empowerment over family obligation. In the United States, more than a quarter of households in 2015 were single-person households. In urban areas like New York City, that figure is estimated at nearly half. The same pattern can be seen in East Asia, where family attachments were traditionally very strong. In China, nearly 70% of adults ages 18 to 36 are on their own. The growing numbers of single households 
have been a bonanza for online streaming services that offer a human connection to isolated individuals and migrant workers. In Japan, the harbinger of modern Asian demographics, the number of people living alone is expected to reach 40% of the whole population by 2040. More and more people are not only living alone, but dying alone. There are estimated to be 4,000 lonely deaths in Japan every week. An Unmoored Generation Capitalism and bourgeois culture grew together symbiotically, but the success of capitalism may have sown the seeds of that culture's destruction. Nearly half a century ago, Daniel Bell saw an affluent new class rising with values profoundly divergent from the traditional bourgeois norms of self-control, industriousness, and personal responsibility. Instead, it favored a new type of individualism, unmoored from religion and family, which could dissolve the foundations of middle-class culture. In Japan, traditional values such as hard work, sacrifice, and loyalty are largely rejected by the new generation, the shinjinri, or new race. These younger Japanese, writes one sociologist, are pioneering a new sort of high-quality, low-energy, low-growth existence. Nearly a third of Japanese in their 30s have never had sex, not a good indicator for family formation. The yeomanry will need to recover the family values and ambition that once built a thriving middle class as a defense against falling backward into a more serf-like status. More broadly, the future of democracy will depend also on societal values that help elevate people from the lower classes to the middle, from single persons to responsible parents, from propertyless to owners. Part 5. The New Serfs One day, the property-owning class will be overwhelmed by events far beyond their expectations and quite outside their comprehension. Friedrich Engels, The Condition of the Working Class in England Chapter 13 Beyond the Ring Road Past the Fifth Ring Road outside Beijing, and you enter a world very different from the glittering facades of China's modern urban centers. Rather than new high-rises, this district on the periphery consists largely of jerry-rigged buildings and shacks. The streets are dusty, animals lie about in the midday sun, and men line up outside a house known to accommodate the world's oldest profession. It's like a flashback to the China of 40 years ago, a poor country where the masses could barely eke out the most basic existence. Around every major Chinese city, and many smaller ones, lie similar settlements of migrant workers, estimated to number over 280 million, who travel from the impoverished countryside to work on construction sites, bus tables, and perform other tasks that are generally eschewed by the more fortunate Chinese who have urban hukou, or residence permits. Unable to claim residency in the city, China's migrants lack access to education and health care. Although they do many of the most dangerous jobs, barely one in four has any form of insurance against injury at work. China may be the world's factory, 
but much of the work is done by these unprotected migrants, including children who work at nighttime constructing Amazon's Alexa. Lee's son points out that China's great wealth derives from a worker-made economy that would fit a classically Marxist definition of exploitation. Many people work 60-hour weeks for barely $63 a week in pay. In modern China, former peasants are reprising the role played for millennia by their ancestors, who built the wealth of the Middle Kingdom, but shared in little of it. The poverty of rural China is what drives migration to the cities. Around the world, rural areas are typically poorer than cities, but the disparities are usually not so stark as in China. Rural households in America are 4% poorer on average than urban households. The difference in China is 63%. The much-vaunted Chinese middle class amounts to roughly 12% of the population mostly legal residents of cities, while the 43% of the population living in the countryside struggle to subsist. Their road to a better life in the wealthiest urban centers is being blocked as big cities like Beijing and Shanghai have been declared full. By 2018, the government was beginning to expel some migrants from big cities, leaving them not only unable to work, but homeless. The migrants represent just part of a new working class who must fend for themselves without the security promised by the Maoist-era Iron Rice Bowl. Two-thirds of all Chinese people are either peasants, agricultural laborers, industrial workers, or migrant laborers, all groups unlikely to make it into the middle class by Chinese standards. The vast majority work in the unregulated, informal economy. Opportunities for the working class to move up are also being restricted by the government's focus on advanced technology sectors and automated production, while a slowing of population growth is reducing the demand for construction workers. Because of the generally poor quality of education in rural areas, migrants typically lack the skills needed to find work in the growing sectors of the economy. Zhou Zhang, writing in the South China Morning Post, describes how members of his rural family moved to the city for opportunity, but now the work has dried up. Most of my cousins left their farmland about two decades ago for the construction boom in Shenzhen and Zhujiang, and their adult children joined them in recent years. Now their journey back to the village is going to be a painful one. My cousin Jing Wai is staying put in Shenzhen for now. In 1979, he was almost beaten to death by public security officials for fighting with our village head, and I helped secure his release because I had the unique social status of being the first and only university student from the commune at the time. Jing Wai dreads moving back to the village, but he will have to if he cannot find another job in Shenzhen soon. The broad-based upward mobility once seen in the West, and more recently in Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, may never come to China. Wages in the manufacturing sector are not high enough to lift people into the middle class, writes Nan Chen. Rather than replicating the middle class growth of post-World War II America, she observes, China appears to have skipped that stage altogether and headed straight for a model of extraordinary productivity but disproportionately distributed wealth like the contemporary United States. 
The challenges confronting China's migrant workers today are part of a broader global trend of weakening prospects for the working class, diminishing opportunities, and declining incomes. Beginning in the 1980s, the industrial labor force globally has received a shrinking share of the gross domestic product pie. In 1975, the labor share was about 64% of corporate income, but it dropped to 59% by 2012. This pattern applied not only to wealthy markets in the West, but also to labor-rich markets like China, India, and Mexico. Instead of a path upward, those in the global working class increasingly face economic insecurity and even a descent into a new kind of serfdom. The Road to Serfdom Serfdom emerged out of the wreckage of the Roman Empire, replacing slavery but reducing free peasants to another form of dependency and subjection. Slaves had been imported from the far ends of the empire as it expanded and were put to work in the huge estates that grew in the countryside. Today these are large estates, wrote a 4th century poet. At one time they were little villages. In the later empire, smallholders began submitting themselves to a large landowner, providing labor in exchange for protection from tax collectors and barbarian invaders. Imperial law in 332 bound these coloni to their lord's estate and made labor services mandatory. Out of this system would grow the serfdom that powered the medieval agrarian economy. After the Roman Empire collapsed, slavery waned, but most of the remaining free peasantry, seeking safety in the chaotic world, devolved into a subject class not much better off than slaves. Speaking of a serf attached to his estate, a French abbot claimed, He is mine from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Serfs could not themselves be bought and sold, but they were legally unfree and regarded as inferior. They and their descendants came to have the right to remain on their lord's estate, but not to leave it. They were required to work the lord's untenanted land, or domain, to pay their lord a portion of what they produced on the plot of land they worked for their own needs, and to give a tithe to the parish church. This would be the condition of at least three-quarters of the European population in the feudal era. Various factors began to undermine European serfdom, including peasant rebellions that became more frequent in the later Middle Ages. The catastrophic population loss caused by the Black Death, 1347 to 1352, resulted in a labor shortage, giving more leverage to laborers. An increasing use of coinage enabled some serfs to buy their freedom, while urban growth provided new opportunities to make a livelihood. By the 15th century, agricultural labor was done more by paid workers than by serfs. Life remained hard even for free peasants, however. Despite some technological advances and increasing commerce, there was little sustained economic growth for centuries. Fernand Braudel paints the grim reality of life for European peasants in the Middle Ages and into the early modern era, a life of almost total deprivation. Peasants had practically no furniture, often not even a table, and they sold their better food products, like wheat, eggs, poultry, and lambs, to their social superiors, contenting themselves with millet and maize, 
supplemented by salt pork once a week. Similar feudal structures with highly concentrated property ownership, wide disparities in wealth, and economic stagnation lasted even longer in Asia than in the West. By 1913, China's population was four times its size in 1500, but most people were still peasants living in a state of poverty, if not near starvation. The bondage of feudalism remained well in place into the 1940s, Mao observed. The Triumph of the Working Class Centuries after serfdom ended in Western Europe, a new serf-like working class developed in the early industrial era. Displaced peasants and small farmers who went to work in urban factories in the early 19th century powered Britain's robust economic growth, but endured conditions arguably worse than those of the poorest inhabitants of ancient cities. Even Rome's slaves had readily available water, but some British industrial workers had to walk a mile and wait in line for it. Science was improving the mechanical contrivances of life, wrote Philip A. M. Taylor, but the arts of life were in decline. In the mid-19th century, upwards of 30% of the British population owned practically nothing. From these poor laborers would come demands for a greater share of the vast wealth produced by their own labor. The French bourgeoisie and some peasants, along with their intellectual allies, overthrew the monarchy and ended the privileges of the aristocracy and clergy. But decades later, Alexis de Tocqueville saw widening disparities in property distribution in the emerging capitalist economy. The great field of battle will be property, he predicted. The next political struggles would begin between those who possess and those who have nothing. It would be a struggle that the upper classes might lose. Tocqueville was writing in 1847, the year before the Communist Manifesto appeared. But there would not be another revolutionary upheaval in France or a Marxist-style revolution anywhere in Western Europe. The working classes would not need to overthrow the system to improve their prospects. Instead, governments gradually, with considerable nudging, began to address their grievances and accommodate their needs, thus escaping Marxist revolution and autocratic socialism. In the 1850s, living and working conditions were already beginning to improve for laborers in British factories, shorter working days, higher wages, lower taxes on food. The reform bills of 1832 and 1867 expanded the franchise, giving a greater political voice to rural smallholders and urban workers. Across Europe, life continued to improve for the working classes, despite some painful periods, especially the Great Depression. Marx never anticipated this development, which undermined the belief in his infallibility held by some acolytes. In the United States, Alexander Hamilton's vision was congruent with a European-style class system, vesting power in propertied worthies. But populists, notably during the presidency of Andrew Jackson, pushed an agenda that offered the promise of expanded opportunities for both rural freeholders and urban workers. Despite its nasty racial history, brutal policies toward Native Americans, and tolerance of slavery, Jacksonian democracy represented something of a revolution, not only in politics, but in expectations for average Americans.
After the Civil War, the old merchant and planter elites were displaced by a new industrial aristocracy with enormous and sometimes very conspicuous wealth, but the country as a whole continued to prosper. In 1861, there were three millionaires in the United States, and by the end of the century, the number had risen to 3,800. The swiftness of their accumulations rivaled all previous achievements in the history of lucre, wrote Charles and Mary Beard. These great fortunes elicited the resentment of many in the middle class and the old upper class, and anger among the industrial workers whose labor helped build that wealth, but who had little way to protect themselves from exploitation by the powerful corporations. Social reforms during the Progressive Era and under the New Deal brought substantial gains for laborers, such as the right to organize. The swelling ranks of unionized workers achieved major victories, in particular the so-called Treaty of Detroit in 1950 between the major auto companies and auto workers. A growing economy as well as union contracts brought improving conditions for communities that had previously been left behind or suffered discrimination, especially African Americans. Large numbers migrated away from the fields of the South to take factory jobs that paid better and offered protection from discrimination. Black women found employment in service jobs and other occupations instead of working as domestic servants. In the three decades after the end of the Depression, the income gap between black and white men shrank by about one-third, and black women made even bigger gains. Racial prejudice persisted, shamefully, but life expectancy, college enrollment, and home ownership rates for black Americans all rose dramatically. The entire working class was moving upward at the same time. Between 1940 and 1950, the incomes of the bottom 40% of American workers surged by roughly 40%, while the gains of the top quintile were a modest 8%, and the top 5% saw their incomes drop slightly. The new industrial state gave workers an escape from the wretched freedom of the slums, as John Kenneth Galbraith put it. By the 1960s, the American labor movement could boast of developing a whole new middle class, said Walter Ruther, president of the United Auto Workers. Industrial laborers could afford to buy homes, send their kids to college, and live the kind of life only the affluent had previously enjoyed. Goodbye to Ruther's Universe This promise of a better future for all has been evaporating and one reason is the decline of private sector unions. In the United States, membership in trade unions fell from 28% in 1954 to 11% in 2017. Similar declines have occurred in other countries, including those in Northern and Western Europe. Since 1985, the proportion of unionized workers in the higher-income countries dropped from 30% to below 20%. Unionization of the workforce has declined in large part because industrial jobs have been disappearing. As early as the 1950s, automation was beginning to eliminate some industrial labor jobs, but such jobs have also been particularly vulnerable to globalization. U.S. trade with China alone, according to the Labor-Backed Economic Policy Institute, cost 3.4 million jobs between 1979 and 2017.
This trend in the United States has been accelerated by some other countries' more jealous protection of their workers. Great Britain, too, has seen a rapid decrease in the numbers of industrial jobs. Even promising sectors like medical equipment shrank from 150,000 to 30,000 jobs between 1995 and 2015. In various parts of the world, rust belts have sprung up. In the British Midlands, in the old industrial cities of eastern Germany and northeastern France, in Ontario, in Wuhan, in Osaka, in the American Midwest. John Russo and Sherry Lincoln have described how the loss of jobs in communities like Youngstown, Ohio, an old steelmaking center, undermines the sense of worth and optimism among residents, many of whom can recall better days. In places like Youngstown, many people still remember what life was like when employment was high, jobs paid well, workers were protected by strong unions, and industrial labor provided a source of pride, not only because it produced tangible goods, but also because it was recognized as challenging, dangerous, and important. The memory of what it felt like to transform raw ore into steel pipes and to be part of the connected, prosperous community that work generated still haunts the children and grandchildren of those workers. They long for the sense of purpose that industrial labor brought, even as they stock shelves at Walmart, wait tables at Applebee's, and try to persuade strangers to make donations from a cubicle at the local call center. As the numbers of industrial jobs have declined, so have working-class incomes, a sharp reversal from the trend after World War II. For the past four decades in the United States, those below the top 20%, including much of what is regarded as the middle class, have enjoyed no consistent gains. The median lifetime incomes, over an assumed 30-year working life, of American men in all occupations who entered the labor market in 1983 were up to one-fifth lower than those of the cohorts who began work in 1967. This does not mean that all American incomes dropped across the board, but the overall trend was downward. Upward mobility, the essence of capitalist promise, has declined markedly in virtually all high-income countries. In Ontario, the economic center of historically egalitarian Canada. Middle-class jobs are disappearing and being replaced by a mix of highly technical jobs and low-end work. The job polarization resulting from shrinkage of the middle-wage sector can be seen in Europe as well, notably Germany, France, and Sweden, countries long associated with social democracy. In the United Kingdom, between 2010 and 2014, Urban wages dropped 5%, even as a million jobs were created. In France, a majority of citizens could not save more than 50 euros, $56, a month. Future technological advances could further intensify the pressure on the working class globally. In 2017, a British report predicted that about 30% of jobs in the UK would be automated within 15 years with a higher risk of automation for jobs typically held by men, 35%, than for those normally done by women, 26%. It's easier to automate trucking than nursing. Artificial intelligence could accelerate the loss of many kinds of jobs that once provided the means of upward mobility. Postal workers, 
switchboard operators, machinists, computer operators, bank tellers, travel agents. For the 90 million Americans who work in such jobs and their counterparts elsewhere, the future could be bleak. Chapter 14. The Future of the Working Class In the past, fears of job losses from automation were often overstated. Technological progress eliminated some jobs, but created others, and often better-paying ones. In the early days of the high-tech revolution, many of the pioneering firms, such as Hewlett-Packard, Intel, and IBM, were widely praised for treating their lower-level workers as part of the company and deserving of opportunities for advancement, as well as benefits including health insurance and a pension. The labor policies of the newer generation of tech giants tend to be vastly different. Firms like Tesla have been sued for failing to pay contract workers the legally mandated overtime rates and for depriving them of meal and rest breaks. The Tesla plant has wages below the industry average, according to workers, and risk of injury higher than the industry average, notes a pro-labor nonprofit. Given that the high housing prices keep them living far from the workplace, some workers sleep in the factory hallways or in their cars. Everything feels like the future but us, complained one worker. The largest tech employer today is Amazon, with 798,000 employees worldwide in 2019. Amazon tends to pay its workers less than rivals do. Many employees rely on government assistance, such as food stamps, to make ends meet. When the company announced it was adopting a minimum wage of $15 an hour, it also cut stock options and other benefits, largely wiping out the raises, at least for long-term employees. The average Amazon worker in 2018 made less than $30,000 annually, about the same as the CEO made every 10 seconds. Working conditions at Amazon are often less than optimal. Warehouse workers in Britain were reportedly urinating in bottles to avoid being accused of time-wasting for taking breaks. Amazon has also patented wristbands that track employee movements, described as a labor-saving measure. Those who can't keep up the pace are written up and then fired, said one British worker. They make it like the Hunger Games. That's what we actually call it. Apple manufactures virtually all its products abroad, mostly in China, although both medical concerns and political factors might change that. In addition to its own employees there, the company relies on the labor of more than 700,000 workers, roughly 10 times its U.S. employment, to build Apple products at contractors like Foxconn. These workers suffer conditions that have led to illegal strikes and suicides. Workers often claim they are treated no better than robots. From Proletariat to Precariat In the old working-class world, unions often set hours and benefits, but many low-status workers today are sinking into what has been described as the precariat with limited control over their working hours and often living on barely subsistence wages. One reason for this descent is a general shift away from relatively stable jobs in skill-dependent industries or in services like retail to such occupations as 
hotel housekeepers, and home care aides. People in jobs of this kind have seen only meager wage gains, and they suffer from income volatility due to changing conditions of employment and the lack of long-term contracts. This kind of volatility has become more common even in countries with fairly strong labor laws. In Canada, the number of people in temp jobs has been growing at more than triple the pace of permanent employment, since many workers who lose industrial jobs fail to find another full-time permanent position. The same patterns can be seen in traditionally labor-friendly European countries. From 20 to 30 percent of the working-age population in the EU-15 and the United States, or up to 162 million individuals, are doing contract work. A similar trend shows up in developing countries such as Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Even in Japan, long known as a country of secure long-term employment, the trend is toward part-time conditional work. Today, some 40% of the Japanese workforce are irregular, also known as fritors, and this group is growing fast while the number of full-time jobs is decreasing. The instability in employment is widely seen as one reason for the country's ultra-low birth rate. Many of today's precariat work in the contingent gig economy associated with firms such as Uber and Lyft. These companies and their progressive allies, including David Pluff, who managed Barack Obama's presidential campaign in 2008, like to speak of a sharing economy that is democratizing capitalism by returning control of the working day to the individual. They point to opportunities that the gig economy provides for people to make extra money using their own cars or homes. The corporate image of companies like Uber and Lyft features moonlighting drivers saving up cash for a family vacation or a fancy date while providing a convenient service for customers, the ultimate win-win. Yet for most gig workers, there's not very much that is democratic or satisfying in it. Most are not like the middle-class driver in Uber ads picking up some extra cash for luxuries. Instead, they depend on their gigs for a livelihood, often barely making ends meet. Almost two-thirds of American gig workers in their late 30s and 40s, the age range most associated with family formation, were struggling to pay their bills. Nearly half of gig workers in California live under the poverty line. One survey of gig workers in 75 countries, including the United States, found they most earned less than minimum wage, leading one observer to label them the last of Marx's oppressed proletarians. The reasons for their precarious situation are not hard to locate. Gig workers lack many basic protections that full-time workers might have, such as enforcement of civil rights laws. Workers without representation, or even set hours, do not have the tools needed to protect their own position. They are essentially fungible, like day laborers anywhere. Robert Reich, former U.S. Secretary of Labor, has gone so far as to label the sharing economy a share-the-scraps economy. Rather than providing an add-on to a middle-class life, gig work for many has turned out to be something closer to serfdom. Cultural Erosion in the Working Class The downward economic trajectory of the working class has been amplified by cultural decline. 
the traditional bulwarks of communities, religious institutions, extended family, neighborhood and social groups, trade unions, have weakened generally, but the consequences are most damaging for those with limited economic resources. Social decay among the working class echoes what occurred in the first decades of the Industrial Revolution, when family and community structures and bonds of religion buckled and often broke. Rampant alcoholism spread, a pestilence of liquor across all of Europe, wrote the Marxist historian E.J. Hobsbawm. In the mid-19th century, 40,000 prostitutes plied their trade in London. The physical condition of British workers was horrible. Most were malnourished and suffered various job-related maladies. As late as 1917, only one-third of the young males were considered to be in good health. In America and elsewhere today, the working classes lag behind the affluent in family formation, academic test scores, and graduation rates. Marriages may be getting more stable in the upper classes, as the sociologist Stephanie Kuntz has shown, but as many as one in three births in the nation occurs outside matrimony. In some working-class neighborhoods, particularly those with a large proportion of ethnic minorities, four-fifths of all children are born to unmarried mothers. The rate of single parenting is the most significant predictor of social immobility across the United States and in Europe as well. These social patterns parallel changes in economic trends. A detailed study in the United States published in 2017 shows that when towns and counties lose manufacturing jobs, fertility and marriage rates decrease, while out-of-wedlock births and the share of children living in single-parent homes increase. In addition, a variety of health problems, obesity, diabetes, disease of the heart, kidney, or liver, occur in much higher rates when family income is under $35,000 than when it is over $100,000. Between 2000 and 2015, the death rate increased for middle-aged white Americans with a low educational level. Ann Case and Angus Deaton say this trend owes primarily to deaths of despair, suicides as well as deaths related to alcohol and drugs, including opioids. In Europe, likewise, a health crisis including drug addiction and drug-related deaths has emerged in old industrial areas, especially in Scotland. In East Asia, traditionally known for strong family structures, the working class is showing signs of social erosion. Half of all South Korean households have experienced some form of family crisis, mostly involving debt, job loss, or issues relating to child or elder care, notes one recent study. Japan has a rising misery index of divorces, single motherhood, spousal and child abuse, all of which accelerate the country's disastrous demographic decline and deepen class division. An even greater social challenge may emerge in China, where some authorities are concerned about the effects of deteriorating family relations, particularly in care for aging parents. The government has started the campaign to promote the ideal of Filial piety, a surprising revival of Confucian ideals by a state that previously attempted to eradicate them. The problem of family breakdown is especially severe in the countryside. The flow of migrants into the cities in search of work has resulted in an estimated 60 million left-behind children and nearly as many left-behind elderly.
The migrants themselves suffer from serious health problems, including venereal disease at rates far higher than the national norm, but the children left behind in rural villages face especially difficult challenges. Scott Rosell, a professor at Stanford University, found that most of these children are sick or malnourished, and as many as two in three suffer from anemia, worms, or myopia. Rosell predicts that more than half the left-behind toddlers are so cognitively delayed that their IQs will never exceed 90. This pretends a future is something like the gammas and epsilons of Brave New World. The Gentrification of the Left In developed nations, as the middle classes are being proletarianized and the working classes fall further behind, the long-standing alliance between the intellectual left and the working class is dissolving. Already in the 1960s, new left radicals such as C. Wright Mills and Ferdinand Lundberg disparaged the mental capacity of average Americans. Most of the population, according to Lundberg, were quite misinformed and readily susceptible to be worked upon, distracted. The general acceptance of capitalism by the working class, as well as questions of race and culture, led many on the left to seek a new coalition to carry the progressive banner. For its part, the working class has moved away from its traditional leftist affiliation, not only in the United States, but also across Europe and the United Kingdom. The more than 150-year-old alliance between the industrial working class and what one might call the intellectual-cultural left is over, wrote Bo Rothstein, a Swedish political scientist. He suggests that a political alliance between the intellectual left and the new entrepreneurial economy could replace the old class struggle model and provide a way to organize public services in a new and more democratic way. Across Europe, traditional parties of the left now find their backing primarily among the wealthy, the highly educated, and government employees. Germany's Social Democrats, France's Socialists, and the British and Australian Labour parties have been largely gentrified, as has America's Democratic Party, despite the resurgence of democratic socialism as part of its ideology. They have shifted their emphasis away from their historic working-class base toward people with college and graduate degrees. Even more than disagreements over immigration and cultural values, differences in economic interests have driven a wedge between the established left and the working class. The agenda promoted by the leftist clerisy and the corporate elite on immigration, globalization, greenhouse gas emissions, does not threaten their own particular interests, but it often directly threatens the interests of working-class people, especially in resource-based industries, manufacturing, agriculture, and construction. Environmental policy in places like California and Western Europe has tended to ignore the concerns of working-class families. The continuing heavy use of coal, oil, and other fossil fuels still increasing in countries like India and China, may present a danger to humanity's future, but it has contributed greatly to wealth creation and the comfort of the working class since the 18th century. Plans for a drastic reduction in the use of carbon-based energy by 2050 would force middle-class Americans to be more like North Koreans in their energy consumption. In Europe, green energy mandates have caused a spike in energy costs. 
as many as one in four Germans and over half of Greeks have had to spend 10% or more of their income on energy, and three-fourths of Greeks have cut other spending to pay their electricity bills, which is the economic definition of energy poverty. These mandates have far less impact on the wealthy. In their zeal to combat climate change, the clerisy have taken aim at things like suburban homes, cars, and affordable airfare. The lifestyles of the middle and working classes are often criticized by the very rich, who will likely maintain their own luxuries even under a regime of sustainability. A former UK environment minister said that cheap airfare represents the irresponsible face of capitalism. Apparently, the more expensive travel done by the wealthy, including trips by private jet to conferences on climate change, is not so irresponsible. New regulations and taxes on fuel imposed by France's aggressively green government sparked the Gilets Jaunes uprising, as well as the previous Bonnet Rouge protests in Brittany. Those in today's intellectual left are concerned about the planet and about international migrants, but not so much about their compatriots in the working class. The French philosopher Didier Eribon, a gay man who grew up in a struggling working-class family in provincial Reims, describes a deep-seated class racism in elite intellectual circles toward people like his family. Working-class voters in France were joyful at the socialist victory in the 1981 election, but then found themselves supporting a government whose priorities turned out to be neoliberalism, multiculturalism, and modernization. One result is widespread cynicism toward the political establishment. Arabon recalls his socialistically inclined mother saying, right or left, there's no difference. They are all the same, and the same people always end up footing the bill. Realignment As the major left-leaning parties in the high-income countries have become gentrified, the political orientation of working-class voters is realigning. Populist and nationalist parties in Sweden, Hungary, Spain, Poland, and Slovakia have done particularly well among younger voters. In fact, many of the right-wing nationalist parties are led by millennials. American millennials, too, are surprisingly attracted to right-wing populism. In November 2016, more white American millennials voted for Donald Trump than for Hillary Clinton. Their much-ballyhooed shift toward the Democratic Party has reversed, and now less than a majority identify as Democrats. More broadly, a sense of betrayal among those being left behind by progress is leading to defections from mainstream parties of both right and left. Among the working classes and the young, there is a steady growth of far-left opposition to the established liberal order, as well as strong support for the far right. This increasing movement away from the center and toward the fringes is not an ideal formula for a stable democratic society. As Tocqueville put it, we may be sleeping on a volcano. Chapter 15. Peasant Rebellions Will the world's working classes accept their continuing decline? We are already seeing what might be described as peasant rebellions against the globalist order that is being constructed by the oligarchs and their allies in the clerisy. In recent years, 
An insurrectionary spirit has surfaced in the Brexit vote, the rise of neo-nationalist parties in Europe, and authoritarian populists in Brazil and the Philippines, and, of course, the election of Donald Trump. At the core of these rebellions against the political mainstream lies the suspicion among the lower classes that the people who control their lives, whether corporate bosses or government officials, do not have their interests at heart. The slow-growth economy that emerged from the Great Recession benefited the financial elite and property speculators, but did little for the vast majority of people. Firms like Apple have profited from soaring stock prices and low-wage Chinese production, while less capital-rich businesses have struggled. These lopsided economic results have prompted attrition from the traditional mainstream political parties in many countries. In multi-party democracies, a reaction against economic globalization and mass immigration, among other policies, has resulted in pronounced movement to the political fringes. One Harvard study found that anti-establishment populist parties across Europe expanded their share of the electorate from 10% in 1990 to 25% in 2016. At the same time, center-left parties are losing ground to far-left parties or candidates. Is this only a prelude to a more serious kind of rebellion, one that could undermine democratic capitalism itself? A Brief History of Peasant Rebellions Admirers of medieval feudalism highlight the concept of mutual obligation between the classes. The upper clergy and the military aristocracy practiced a kind of noblesse oblige that provided a floor, albeit often insufficient, for the lower classes. But the obligations of the lower to the higher classes may have been no more voluntary than those binding the Cosa Nostra. The medieval poor did not always accept their miserable situation quietly. Uprisings broke out as early as Charlemagne's reign in the ninth century and became more common in the later Middle Ages. Violent peasant armies actually bested aristocratic knights in the Low Countries in 1227, in northern Germany in 1230, and in the Swiss Alps in 1315. The brutal 14th century brought a rash of peasant rebellions and urban insurrections. French peasants burned down manors of the wealthy in the Jacquerie of 1358, aiming to destroy all the nobles and gentry in the world, and there would be none any more. After being routed by armies of nobility and gentry, the insurgents were subjected to a campaign of reprisal that cost an estimated 20,000 lives. In England, a labor shortage following the Great Plague resulted in higher pay and more mobility for laborers, but Parliament and big landowners took measures to hold down wages and keep peasants on their estates. Then a new poll tax sparked a large-scale uprising led by Watt Tyler in 1381. A radical priest named John Ball traveled up and down England stirring up peasants, and in a speech outside London he famously asked, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? The rebels' demands included abolition of serfdom and feudal service, an end to market monopolies and other restrictions on buying and selling, and confiscation of clerical property. Violent uprisings of peasants or urban poor also broke out in many other places, including Flanders, 
Florence, Lubeck, Paris, Transylvania, Croatia, Estonia, Galicia, and Sweden. But the biggest social upheaval before the French Revolution was the Great Peasants' Rebellion of 1525 in Germany. Among the demands presented in the Twelve Articles of the Peasantry were the abolition of serfdom, restrictions on feudal dues, the right to fish and hunt, and the right of peasants to choose their own priest. The rebels took inspiration from Martin Luther's doctrine of a priesthood of all believers, but Luther himself became horrified by their violence. The rebellion was put down so savagely that it dissuaded further uprisings in Germany. Only rarely did such rebellions prove successful, like the one by the Swiss peasants. The ruling powers sometimes used treachery to quell uprisings by offering pardons that were eventually revoked. In 17th century England, Cromwell's respectable revolution quashed the efforts of the levelers to extend Parliament's war against the monarchy into a radical egalitarian reordering of society. Southern and Western France endured frequent rural protests through much of the 17th century. Peasant rebellions also occurred in other parts of the world, often with greater ferocity. Japan had numerous eco or peasant uprisings, particularly in the 15th century. The consolidation of power under the shogun in 1600 finally put an end to the disturbances. There were numerous uprisings and revolutions in Mexico, but it was only in the early 20th century that the peones finally overturned the quasi-feudal regime left over from the Spanish legacy. They achieved significant land reform, but at the cost of well over a million lives. In Russia, with its overwhelmingly rural society, peasant rebellions were commonplace by the 17th century. A revolt among Ural Cossacks under Emelian Pugachev threatened the Tsarist regime in 1773 during the reign of Catherine the Great. The rebellion failed, as did some 550 others, but in 1917, the peasants rose up to support Lenin's seizure of power. When the Soviet regime began to confiscate land for collectivization, the property-loving Mujiks rebelled, only to be put down ruthlessly. Arguably the most powerful peasant rebellion occurred in China in 1843. After failing civil service exams several times, Hung Shu Chuan read some Christian tracts and connected their message with hallucinations he had experienced. He designed his own religion, in which he was part of the Holy Trinity, but with doctrines based mainly on the Ten Commandments, and he preached it to destitute laborers. His Taiping Rebellion called for the overthrow of the Manchu Qing dynasty, land reform, improving the status of women, tax reduction, eliminating bribery, and abolishing the opium trade. The rebellion was finally put down more than a decade later, with massive loss of life. Some of the Taiping program would later be adopted by Sun Yat-sen, who would overthrow the imperial regime, and then by Mao Zedong and the communists. The Revolt Against Mass Migration The contemporary versions of peasant rebellions, particularly in Europe and the United States, are in large part a reaction against globalization and the mass influx of migrants from poor countries with very different cultures. The numbers of international migrants worldwide swelled from 173 million in 2000 
to $258 million in 2017. Of these, $78 million were living in Europe and $50 million in the United States. Mass migration from poorer to wealthier countries seems all but unstoppable, given the great disparities between them. According to a Gates Foundation study, 22% of the people in sub-Saharan Africa live in extreme poverty, defined as subsisting on less than $1.90 a day. By 2050, the region will be home to 86% of the world's poorest people, and about half that number will live in just two countries, Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. For the extremely poor in such countries, who see little to no chance of improving their condition at home, a dangerous trek to Europe or some other wealthy place would seem worth the risk. Many people in Europe have welcomed migrants from poorer countries, including former colonies. Political and cultural elites in particular have elevated cosmopolitanism and diversity above national identity and tradition. Tony Blair's Cool Britannia was an effort to highlight cultural diversity as a central part of modern Britain's identity. Hermann Lebowitz, in Bringing the Empire Back Home, France in the Global Age, 2004, pondered how to redefine what it means to be French in a multicultural age. When Germany's Chancellor, Angela Merkel, flung the doors wide open to a huge wave of refugees and migrants from the war-ravaged Middle East in 2015, many ordinary Germans were eager to show Gastfreundschaft, or hospitality, as were many people elsewhere in Europe. By the end of the year, nearly a million refugees had entered Germany alone, and the public welcome turned cold. Chancellor Merkel's decision came to be widely unpopular with Germans and the vast majority of Europeans. A year after the rapid influx of refugees began, Pew Research found that 59% of Europeans thought immigrants were imposing a burden on their country, while only a third said that immigrants made their country a better place to live. Among Greeks, 63% said that immigrants made things worse, as did 53% of Italians. In 2018, Pew found 70% of Italians, almost 60% of Germans, half of Swedes, and 40% of French and British citizens wanting either fewer or no new immigrants. Barely 10% wanted more. In the years following Merkel's decision to set out the welcome wagon, virtually all European countries, including such progressive ones as the Netherlands, France, Denmark, Norway, and Germany itself, have tightened their immigration controls. This has been done chiefly to counter the populist and at times quasi-fascist nativist movements growing in many countries, Hungary, Poland, Austria, France, the Netherlands, Sweden, Finland, Slovakia, and most importantly, in Germany. Much of the support for populist parties comes from the working class and lower middle class, who are more exposed to the disruptions and dangers that the migrants have often brought and are generally more burdened by the public expense of accommodating them. Even in Sweden, where the citizens have long prided themselves on tolerance, there is widespread anger about rising crime and an unprecedented level of social friction in a formerly homogenous country. Some of the anti-immigrant movements that have sprung up espouse racist views, but others are far less odious, 
being simply opposed to the globalizing policies of elites and their indifference to the concerns of average citizens. Some have found inspiration in the Middle Ages, such as the example of the Frankish king Charles Martel, who defeated Muslim invaders in the 8th century. Fans of Donald Trump presented images of him as a crusader clad in chain mail with a cross embroidered on the front. The conflict over immigration divides largely along class lines. There is a huge divergence between elite opinion, which generally favors mass immigration, and that of majorities in the working and middle classes. France's president, Emmanuel Macron, acknowledged this divergence in 2015 when he said, The arrival of refugees is an economic opportunity, and too bad if it isn't popular. If political elites in Europe regard open borders as good for the economy, corporate elites in the United States are eager to import skilled technicians and other workers who typically accept lower wages. The tech oligarchs in particular like to hire from abroad. In Silicon Valley, roughly 40% of the tech workforce is made up of non-citizens. Steve Case, the former CEO of America Online, has suggested that immigrant entrepreneurs and workers could offset middle-class job losses from automation. Some conservative intellectuals have even thought that hard-working newcomers should replace the lazy elements of the working class. Some of the earliest opposition to the Trump administration focused on his agenda of curtailing immigration. Somewheres versus Anywheres Ironically, the people who most strongly favor open borders are welcoming large numbers of immigrants who do not share their own secular, progressive values. That is particularly true in Europe, where migrants and refugees from Muslim countries often hold very conservative or reactionary views on things such as homosexuality and women's rights. Many even support female genital mutilation. Some European politicians and other leaders, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, have proposed that elements of Muslim Sharia law, such as a prohibition of blasphemy, could be applied on top of existing national standards. Gilles Capel, one of France's leading Arabists, observes that Muslims coming to Europe tend to possess a keen sense of cultural identity rooted in religion, while the media and academia tend to promote the erasing of identities, at least for the native population. Rather than defend their own values, Europeans and others in the West have been told by their leaders that they must give up their principles and soul. It's the politics of fait accompli. This erasing of identities is not widely popular among the working and middle classes. The British writer David Goodhart describes a cultural conflict between the cosmopolitan post-national anywheres and the generally less educated but more rooted somewheres. If the media and most high-level government and business leaders in Europe have an anywhere perspective, people in less cosmopolitan precincts outside the capital cities tend to remain more strongly tied to national identities, local communities, religion, and tradition. These divisions were particularly evident in the vote on Brexit and the conservative sweep in 2019. The somewhere sentiment has repeatedly been expressed in votes concerning the European Union. In addition to the Brexit referendum of 2016, French, Danish, and Dutch voters 
have opted against deeper or broader EU ties, preferring a stronger national somewhere. Less than 10% of EU residents identify themselves as Europeans first, and 51% favor a more powerful nation-state, while only 35% want power in Brussels to be increased. As long as the political and economic elites ignore these preferences, populist rebellions against establishment parties will likely continue and could become more disruptive. Elite disdain for traditions of country, religion, and family tends to exacerbate class conflict around cultural identity. Liberalism is stupid about culture, observed Stuart Hall, a Jamaican-born Marxist sociologist. In the United States, discontent with the globalist and open borders agenda of the oligarchs and the upper clerisy resulted in strong working-class support for Donald Trump in 2016. He won two out of every five union voters and an absolute majority among white males. Like his European counterparts, Trump ran strongest in predominantly white, working-class, and lower-middle-class areas, precisely the areas hardest hit by globalization. He appealed most to people who work with their hands, own small shops, or are employed in factories, the logistics industry, and energy sector. Those who repair and operate machines, drive trucks, and maintain our power grid. Among white voters, at least, he did poorest with well-educated professionals. To many voters, Trump was a champion for forgotten millions. When surveyed, these voters put a high priority on bringing back manufacturing jobs, protecting Social Security and Medicare, and getting conservatives on the Supreme Court, ahead of building a wall to keep out undocumented immigrants who are widely seen as cutting into labor wages for American citizens. Even though he came from the business elite, Trump met almost universal opposition from the dominant classes. Instead, he won over voters who see big corporations as indifferent to the well-being of working people. Like some of the populist movements in Europe, the American populist right has adopted many of the class-based talking points, although usually not the policies associated with the pre-gentrified left. In the higher echelons of the clerisy, the response to the populist revolt has mostly been revulsion. It's time for the elites to rise up against the ignorant masses, was the title of an article by James Traub in Foreign Policy in the summer of 2016. A former New York Times writer, Traub asserted that the Brexit vote and the nomination of Donald Trump, among other developments, indicate that the political schism of our time is not between left and right, but the sane versus the mindless angry. Larry Summers, a former Obama administration official, took a more astute view of the matter. The willingness of people to be intimidated by experts into supporting cosmopolitan outcomes appears for the moment to have been exhausted. Is there a mass insurrection in the making? In the late 1920s and early 1930s, the proletarianization of the middle class resulted in widespread support for communism, fascism, and national socialism. Today, as in Europe before World War II, people on both right and left often blame financial institutions for their precarious situation. Anger at the financial services sector gave rise to the Occupy Wall Street movement in New York City 
and the many spin-off Occupy protests in 2011 to 2012, marching under the slogan, We are the 99%, protesters around the world decried the heavy concentration of wealth in a few hands. Alienation from the political mainstream today is resulting in strong support for far-left parties and candidates among youth in various high-income countries. In France's presidential election of 2017, the former Trotskyite Jean-Luc Mélenchon won the under-24 vote, beating the more youthful Emmanuel Macron by almost two to one among that age group. In the United Kingdom, the Labour Party under the neo-Marxist Jeremy Corbyn in 2018 won more than 60% of the under-40 vote, while the Conservatives got just 23%. He won the youth vote similarly in 2020, even amidst a crushing electoral defeat. In Germany, the Green Party enjoys wide support among the young. A movement toward hard-left politics, particularly among the young, is also apparent in the United States, which historically has not been fertile ground for Marxism. In the 2016 primaries, the openly socialist Bernie Sanders easily outpolled Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump combined among under 30 voters. He also did very well among young people and Latinos in the early 2020 primaries, even as other elements of the Democratic Party rejected him decisively. Support for socialism, long anathema in America, has gained currency in the new generation. A poll conducted by the Communism Memorial Foundation in 2016 found that 44% of American millennials favored socialism, while 14% chose fascism or communism. By 2024, millennials will be the country's biggest voting bloc by far. The core doctrines of Marxism are providing inspiration for labor unrest in China today, particularly among the younger generation of migrants to the cities. Activists often find themselves prosecuted for threatening the social order. Communist officials have been put in the awkward position of cracking down on Marxist study groups at universities, whose working-class advocacy conflicts with the policies of the nominally socialist government. Democratic capitalist societies need to offer the prospect of a brighter future for the majority. Without this belief, more demands for a populist strongman or a radical redistribution of wealth seem inevitable. A form of oligarchic socialism, with subsidies or stipends for working people, might stave off destitution while allowing the wealthiest to maintain their dominance. But the issue boils down to whether people, not just those with elite credentials and skills, actually matter in a technological age. Wendell Berry, the Kentucky-based poet and novelist, observed that the great question hovering over society is, what are people for? By putting an absolute premium on labor-saving measures, we may be creating more dependence on the state while undermining the dignity of those who want to do useful work. The future of the working class should concern us all. If too many lack any hope of improving their condition, we could face dangerous upheaval in the near future. Part 6. The New Geography of Feudalism A metropolitan economy, if it is working well, 
is constantly transforming many poor people into middle-class people, many illiterates into skilled or even educated people, many greenhorns into competent citizens. Cities don't lure the middle class, they create it. Jane Jacobs, The Death and Life of Great American Cities Chapter 16 The New Gated City Few sites are more thrillingly suggestive of artful modernity than the Chicago skyline. The city center along Lake Michigan is one of the most vibrant business districts in the nation, boasting numerous corporate headquarters and drawing affluent, highly skilled people from across America's vast Midwest. In 2017, Chicago ranked second only to the tech hub Seattle among major American cities for the number of active construction cranes. Yet just a short drive away from the cranes and gleaming towers is a landscape of utter devastation. Minutes from the affluent neighborhood that was home to the nation's first African-American president are old commercial districts now mostly deserted, with small shops, barbecue restaurants, and even long-standing churches lying derelict. Gangs proliferate in the decayed and rat-infested environment, and murder rates are among the highest for a large city in the high-income world. Chicago's crime is heavily concentrated in the poorer districts, as is typical of big cities. According to one study, 5% of the nation's streets account for half of the urban crime. In the late 19th century, the muckraking journalist Frank Norris described Chicago as the heart of the nation. Today it is becoming essentially two different cities. One-third is what the local analyst Pete Saunders calls Global Chicago, which is something of a Midwestern San Francisco, while the other two-thirds is more like Saunders' hometown of Detroit as it is today, much of it a depopulated ruin or a dangerous netherworld of crime. Globalization and rapid deindustrialization together have led to the attrition of relatively well-paying jobs tied to the steel industry, meat processing, and manufacturing of agricultural equipment. Over a period of 15 years, the number of manufacturing jobs in Chicago was cut in half and now stands at the lowest level in modern history. Meanwhile, the middle class has been decimated. In 1970, half of Chicago's residents were middle class. By 2019, the proportion was down to 16%, according to a University of Illinois study. The once large black urban middle class has been particularly ravaged. Many have left for the suburbs or moved to other states. Many of those remaining are worse off than their predecessors half a century ago. Today, around 40% of black 20- to 24-year-olds in Chicago are out of work and out of school, compared with 7% of their white counterparts. William Lee, a Chicago Tribune reporter who grew up in the South Shore neighborhood, says that the large-scale exodus has left those remaining on the South Side feeling like life after the rapture, with relatives, good friends, and classmates vanishing and their communities shattering. The forces of globalization and deindustrialization have likewise transformed many big cities around the world from centers of opportunity 
to places that are starkly divided between rich and poor. Today, the world's great cities, Paris, London, Tokyo, New York, San Francisco, are attractive to those who already have wealth or the most impressive academic credentials, but less promising to the middle and working classes. The engines of upward mobility have stalled. Urban Hierarchy Since ancient times, cities have offered a chance for multitudes to gain prosperity. Rome nurtured the ambitious middle orders who found in the city a perfect environment for improving their condition. But the large numbers of slaves brought in as the empire grew displaced many self-sufficient farmers and artisans who then became dependent on the public provision of bread for sustenance. The best advice for Romans, said Juvenal, was to immigrate from the Eternal City. Urban culture deteriorated after the empire collapsed, and especially after the Muslim conquests and incursions cut off lucrative trade routes. Cities turned into fortresses, where barbarian chieftains and ecclesiastical authorities could live sheltered behind protective walls. But for centuries, these fortress towns were peripheral to the lives of most people. Barely 5% of the medieval European population lived in cities. As commerce quickened again in the later Middle Ages and a substantial merchant class emerged, city walls were extended to include growing populations. During the early modern era, cities became generators of prosperity again. In China, the major cities were mostly intended for mandarins and aristocrats, served by a permanent lower class. The imperial bureaucrats were generally hostile or indifferent to the trading classes, seeing commerce as morally inferior to either scholarship or agriculture. As in Europe, the population overwhelmingly lived outside the city gates. With industrialization, huge fortunes came to be concentrated in big cities. Of course, the wealthy will always tend to congregate in particular places. In the 19th century, the Rockefellers famously moved from Cleveland, their original base, to New York. Many other moguls likewise brought their wealth to the city that the Beards called the most powerful center of accumulation and lived gloriously insulated from the poverty around them. Globally, today's billionaires now cluster in a handful of cities led by New York, but also including San Francisco, Moscow, Tokyo, Shanghai, Mumbai, Beijing, Singapore, London, and Paris. Fifteen cities together hold roughly 11% of the planet's total wealth. These superstar cities are becoming more bifurcated, with oligarchs and the upper clerisy living in the gentrified urban core, surrounded by propertyless and often impoverished masses on the periphery. The elite urban cores constitute only a small percentage of the metropolitan area both in the United States and in Europe. In France, over 60% of the population live in the increasingly neglected periphery, the suburbs, provincial cities and small towns, and rural areas. The new urban paradigm is what Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, famously labeled a luxury city built around the preferences of his ultra-rich compadres. But within the dominant cities are clear divisions by class, education, and sometimes race. 
The wealthy live in safe, gentrified areas, while the poor and minority populations are mostly consigned to neglected peripheral neighborhoods. In a distinctly neo-feudal vision of the urban future, the city core naturally attracts the best and brightest, while those living in the suburban periphery or the smaller cities and towns are doomed to struggle. Urban Bifurcation Rather than a base for upward mobility, the great cities have largely become magnets for those who are already well-to-do. Few working-class or middle-class families can now afford to move to places like Paris, London, Tokyo, New York, San Francisco. Many former residents, like Chicago's black middle class, have left to make their future elsewhere. Many who still work in those cities are forced into intolerably long commutes. As the middle class dwindles, it leaves behind a marginal urban population who depend on the city for a livelihood but often can barely get by. Reporters and politicians might swoon over the city's newest upscale restaurant or hip art gallery, but in the urban centers, there are still many poor neighborhoods and poverty rates are more than 65% higher than in the suburbs. America's major cities in general are not producing inclusive economic growth. As a result, they now have higher levels of inequality than Mexico, according to a recent study. The largest gaps between the top and bottom income quintiles among the 53 major metropolitan areas of the United States are in some of the most celebrated cities, including San Francisco, New York, San Jose, Los Angeles, and Boston. If New York City were a country, it would have the 15th highest inequality level out of 134 countries, landing between Chile and Honduras, according to the Fiscal Policy Institute. Roughly 25% of the city's children live in poverty, more than twice the rate for the surrounding population. Nowhere is the urban class division more obvious than in the San Francisco Bay Area, the favored locale of the tech oligarchy. Two decades into the tech boom, nearly 40% of families in the city of San Francisco are struggling to make ends meet. Wages and job opportunities soared in the affluent, predominantly white precincts, but dropped in the minority-dominated areas. Hugely inflated housing prices have chased many working-class and even middle-class people away to locations hours distant. Increasing numbers of residents sleep on friends' couches, in their cars, or to a shameful extent, in homeless encampments. San Francisco also suffers the highest rate of property crime per capita of any city in the United States. These patterns extend to other parts of the Bay Area, particularly in Silicon Valley. More than half of the Bay Area's lower-income communities are in danger of mass displacement, according to a UC Berkeley study. Gated Cities, a Global Perspective Similar patterns can be seen in big cities around the world. Even historically egalitarian Toronto has become bifurcated. In 1970, two-thirds of the neighborhoods were middle-income, but by 2001, it was down to one-third, while poor districts had more than doubled to 40% of the city. University of Toronto researchers in 2007 projected that middle-class neighborhoods 
would fall to less than 10% of the city by 2020, with the balance being partly affluent neighborhoods, but a far larger portion characterized by very low incomes. The pattern is even more striking in Britain, where wealth has become heavily concentrated in London. It has felt as if the whole country has been turned upside down and shaken until most of the wealth and talent has pooled in the capital, observes Peter Mandler. Home of the Cockney and post-war socialism, London is no longer a city of aspiration for the working and middle classes. It now exists mainly for investors, their student offspring, and highly educated professionals who are taking over the traditional blue-collar areas like Hackney. Today, only three of the city's 32 boroughs are affordable for people of median income. While many of the world's richest people live in London, four of its boroughs rank among the 20 poorest in England, and 27% of the city's population live in poverty. London's polarized economic landscape is typical of superstar cities. Other leading cities of Europe, Oslo, Amsterdam, Athens, Budapest, Madrid, Prague, Riga, Stockholm, Tallinn, Vienna, Vilnius, also suffer widening gaps between the top and the bottom of the social hierarchy. Heavy immigration from developing countries or from less wealthy parts of Europe has exacerbated urban polarization. As the indigenous working and middle classes move out to the urban periphery, immigrants and their offspring crowd into the urban centers. They often fill positions at the lower end of the economy, particularly in services. In France, the proportion of young foreign-born people in the populations of larger cities reaches as high as 35%, notes Michel Tribala, a demographer. Immigrants, mostly from outside Europe, account for 37% of London's population and more than 40% in Brussels, Zurich, and Geneva. Unlike earlier newcomers, today's immigrants find it difficult in rapidly deindustrializing economies with slow growth to secure the kind of work that might provide a ladder to the middle class. Mass migration has not created the vibrant, multicultural future expected by some, but instead has recreated much of the poverty and social disorder that characterized large European cities in the 19th century. Even close to their historic centers, the great cities have become graffiti-scarred, with large numbers of aimless young men loitering on street corners. Crime has become a major problem in the immigrant-heavy parts of the major European cities. Even in cities once known as remarkably safe and orderly, such as Stockholm, crime has risen dramatically over the past decade, and according to numerous official sources, this trend has coincided with the large increase in new immigrants. Europe's multicultural capital, London, by some measures, now has a higher crime rate than New York, although fewer homicides. Densification and Gentrification The social fabric of big cities is being further frayed by efforts to redesign the urban landscape on an upscale model. In many cities, a push for densification often replaces affordable older apartments and single-family houses with expensive apartment complexes geared toward affluent singles and childless couples. Los Angeles, for example, 
once had an abundance of middle-class housing, but some parts of the city, such as around central Los Angeles, have seen a major drop in home ownership rates. Middle-class and working-class families, many of them minorities, have been displaced by hipsters and often pushed to the far periphery. Jane Jacobs spoke passionately about the solidity and staying power of New York's neighborhoods. But the middle-class families that provide the social ballast for such neighborhoods are disappearing in places like Manhattan, West Los Angeles, San Francisco, Central London, and Paris. This is not simply a result of market forces, but of planning by urban political and economic leaders. Seeking to lure elite businesses, the global rich and the highly educated, they often adopt policies that push the poor and middle classes outside the city. A former longtime Chicago resident and urban analyst, Aaron Wren, notes that the city has been losing much of its black population, as well as middle-class and low-income residents more broadly, and seeing a collapse of immigration from Mexico. He observes, None of these forces appear to make the upscale classes of Chicago sad. You certainly don't hear anyone sounding the alarm about black population loss and saying that the city needs to do something about it. In fact, the city's ineffective policing would appear to be a contributor to driving blacks out, meaning black population decline is de facto public policy. This is part of a process that has come to be called gentrification, a term whose origins lie in mid-1960s London. At first, it was unplanned, but over time, it became a matter of design to rebuild urban centers around arts districts, cultural institutions, and sports facilities, using funds that could have gone toward improving infrastructure and education or creating long-term middle-class jobs. One consequence is that much of what made cities culturally distinct and interesting has been lost. The new urban landscape is remarkably similar, often with the same repetitive streetscape, shops, and even similar people in major cities throughout the high-income world. For many people, this gentrification means a worsening quality of life. In fact, the urban world now being fashioned in London does not resemble the social democracy imagined after the Second World War, so much as the bifurcated city of Victorian times, notes James Hartfield, a socialist writer. Some who have chosen to stay in the hyper-expensive capital city have resorted to living in converted bathrooms, garden sheds, and old double-decker buses. Across the UK, there were an estimated 320,000 people living without permanent shelter in 2018, and the number continues to grow. Some urban visionaries even suggest that in the future, people will need to live in shipping crates or water tubes. Even in nominally socialist China, old urban neighborhoods are being physically destroyed and residents uprooted to build global cities. Maggie Shin King's novel, An Excess Male, set a few years in the future, has a long-time Beijing resident remembering the brutal raising of the old blocks of hutong, or courtyard houses, once common in the capital, and the displacement of residents. Stately eight- and ten-lane boulevards crisscross the city, and we rarely walk down one without 
pointing out that countless properties were seized and lives disrupted and, in the most egregious cases, cut short to make possible their construction. Relegated to tiny stacked boxes, ordinary citizens pour into parks and scenic streets, thirsting for open air and elbow room so that our leaders could have their show of grandeur. From creative class to a new urban crisis. The principal concern of many city leaders around the world has been to attract the young, educated professionals identified by the urban theorist Richard Florida as the creative class. To be sure, these people bring wealth and economic advantage to cities, but they are mostly single or childless and not likely to recreate the stable, family-oriented neighborhoods of the historic city, with a thriving middle class and working class. The most favored cities naturally draw the very rich, but they also attract many young people in the creative class who cannot afford to stay very long, particularly if they want to buy property or have children. The average millennial with college debt would need 27 years to save up for a down payment in the San Francisco metro area, according to one study. Most of the young people who move to elite cities are likely to be short-timers indulging the urban phase of their life before heading elsewhere. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, urban core residents on average live barely two and a half years in the same place, whereas the average for suburbanites is about seven years. Given the mass exodus of middle-income residents, especially those with children, from elite cities like New York, they no longer resemble the welcoming urban havens so lovingly portrayed by Jane Jacobs. Her hope that middle-class urbanites could recover their place in the city core seems unrealistic. Decades ago, the National Urban Coalition noted that urban revitalization programs generally produced some overall economic benefit for cities, but at the cost of the deprivation, frustration, and anger of those who are becoming the new urban serfs. Today, big cities continue to draw the wealthy and the well-educated, with impoverished residents pushed to the margins and little in between. The result is rising inequality, deepening economic segregation, and increasingly unaffordable housing which Richard Florida describes as a new urban crisis. Some of those living in the cities outside the glamour zone feel trapped, victims of an urban system that doesn't provide opportunity for them. A backlash against gentrification has appeared in many cities, such as Ontario, Berlin, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and New Orleans. Tactics for repelling gentrifiers have included vandalism and even arson. Jawanza Malone, executive director of Chicago's Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, says that city leaders purposely neglect some neighborhoods while giving priority to the high-end economy and real estate speculation. This isn't natural. This was created, said Malone. The lack of investment in certain areas by the city government or the private sector reflects their perceived lack of importance to the city. It's a signal that residents here aren't as important. Chapter 17 The Soul of the Neo-Feudal City An Inventory of the Possible 
is how René Descartes described the city of Amsterdam in the 17th century. The growth of cities from the later Middle Ages into the modern era provided the ground for the development of a prosperous middle class. When the Industrial Revolution generated stark new inequities, pressure from labor unions and from middle-class reformers led to urban improvements in sanitation and transportation systems, for example, and the creation of public parks. Today's urban world, with its shrinking middle class, is a departure from the ideal of the city as an engine of upward mobility, so emblematic of the industrial capitalist era. Some of the very people who keep a city running—teachers, firemen, police officers—often cannot afford to live there. It is much the same for many skilled blue-collar workers—technicians, construction workers, mechanics— whose ranks are thinning in the high-priced cities. Many people in such occupations find the cost of living in the city far greater than whatever premium it might bring in higher wages or convenience. At the same time, economic opportunity has been declining in smaller cities and towns throughout the high-income world. In Japan, for example, mostly childless professionals cluster in the hyper-expensive and congested urban core often in extremely cramped housing. Meanwhile, many smaller cities and suburbs are fading, notes Tomohiko Makino, a real estate expert focused on vacant houses. Tokyo could end up being surrounded by Detroit's. Arguably the starkest example of class division based on urban status is China's two-tier classification system. Under Hukou, those who do not have the hereditary right of urban residency will always have an inferior, unprotected status, even if they seek opportunity in the city. Among the most common themes in contemporary Chinese science fiction is rigid class divisions in the urban world. Hao Jingfang's Folding Beijing, for example, portrays a megacity divided into sharply delineated communities for the elite, the middle ranks, and a vast, poor population living mainly by recycling the waste generated by the city. This vision represents a shocking divergence from the Maoist ideal. The Polarized Global City Despite their population growth and economic dynamism, the sprawling megacities of the developing world have not nurtured a substantial middle class. Power and money tend to be highly concentrated in a handful of elite urban districts, while opportunities for the middle and working classes are limited. A century after the Mexican Revolution, Mexico City is still composed of a few rich neighborhoods and numerous slum-like communities, such as Ciudad Nezahualcoyotl, where upwards of two million people live in ramshackle dwellings. In many countries, such as India, the oligarchy and well-connected professionals concentrate in and around the urban core, while migration from the countryside only adds to the slum population. In 1971, one in six residents of Mumbai lived in the slums, but now a majority do. The promise of city living is not working as the migrants may have anticipated. Life expectancy in Mumbai is now 57 years, which is nearly seven years below the national average. Urban leaders in some of the fastest-growing large cities 
try to create special spaces to accommodate wealthy and well-educated residents. Places like Santa Fe in Mexico City, Bandra Curla in Mumbai, Ortigas in Manila, or Luis Bejini in Sao Paulo resemble the residential and commercial developments typical of cities in the high-income world. These are what Rajiv Desai has called the VIP zones of cities, where luxury stores, hotels, and office towers mimic those in the West, but surrounding them are extensive slums. As the urban scholar Saskia Sassen observes, the elites in Sao Paulo and the elites in Manila both share an emergent geography of centrality that connects them, rather comfortably, with elites in New York or in Paris. Much of the world is now divided between urban glamour zones and urban slums. Beyond the glamour zones are the extensive improvised favelas that have grown helter-skelter on the outskirts. City residents outside the VIP zones, like the denizens of Chicago's South Side, are not benefiting from the global economy. The shining India that people talk about, for example, does not include the vast majority of the population, notes the sociologist R. M. Sharma. We must ask, the shining India is for whom? The Childless Urban Future Another characteristic of the neo-feudal city is a dearth of children and families. The great metropoles like Hong Kong, London, New York, Los Angeles, Berlin, and Tokyo have exceptionally low percentages of families among their residents. In the United States, birth rates are now at historic lows nationally, but especially in the biggest cities. Between 2011 and 2019, the number of babies born annually in Manhattan dropped by nearly 15%, while the decrease across the city was 9%. The nation's premier urban center could see its infant population shrink by half in the next 30 years. The share of non-family households grew three times as fast in gentrifying neighborhoods as in the city overall. In the future, writes Steve Levine, shifting local priorities could ride kids out of urban life for good. In Hong Kong, the most crowded high-income city, two-thirds of women want either one child only or no children at all mainly due to the price of housing and a harried lifestyle. Major Chinese cities such as Beijing and Shanghai have fertility rates among the lowest in the world and only about one-third the replacement level. The neo-feudal urban order appears to incubate not only an aversion to having children, but also difficulty in relations with the opposite sex. In Japan, roughly a third of men enter their thirties as virgins, and a quarter of men are not married at age 50. This sex recession even affects places like Hong Kong's famous Wan Tsai Red Light District, which is now being remade into an upscale hipster area as the sex trade plummets. China's young men are so disconnected socially that the Communist Party and some private firms are teaching them how to approach women. This is being tried elsewhere, too. The problem is not getting people married or having kids, said one researcher in Singapore. They don't even date. This is clearly a product of modern urbanism, but in China, 
the problem has been exacerbated by the former one-child policy, which in combination with a strong cultural preference for male offspring, has resulted in a demographic challenge. There is now a great surplus of young men who often face difficult odds for getting married. If they lack a car or an apartment, they are likely to become leftover men, also called guanggun, or bare branches, the biological dead ends of their family tree. Xu Zhuo Li, a leading demographer at Xi'an Zhao Tung University in Shanxi province, warns that in the future, there will be millions of men who can't marry, and that could pose a very big risk to society. The Middle Class and Suburbia As cities became overcrowded in the industrial era, the middle classes found an alternative by settling in satellite neighborhoods on the expanding periphery. H.G. Wells foresaw the old city center becoming essentially a bazaar, a great gallery of shops and places of concourse and rendezvous, a pedestrian place, its pathways reinforced by lifts and moving platforms and shielded from the weather, and altogether a very spacious, brilliant, and entertaining agglomeration. Outside the center, he suggested, would be suburban nuclei, functioning as restorations of the old villages and country towns, with the services that most people needed nearby, an opportunity for people to use their skills profitably. In these suburban neighborhoods, the middle class could grow and thrive. Many other reformers of the Victorian and Edwardian era, including radicals like Engels and Wells, favored the outward expansion of cities. Similarly, more conservative figures such as Thomas Carlyle and Ebenezer Howard wished to provide an alternative to the overcrowded inner city for the middle and working classes. In the United States, the architect Frank Lloyd Wright envisioned what he called the Broad Acre City, where average people could own a home and a plot of land. Wright broke with many of the old nostrums of urbanism, maintaining that there was no need to force high-density development in the modern era. In Britain, dispersion and suburbanization began in the 1850s, but accelerated rapidly as soldiers came home from World War II. The result was a new level of comfort for people who were not aristocrats. In places like Milton Keynes, a low-density edge city outside London, the expanding middle class could find safety, privacy, and a spot of lawn. Urban planners and green activists may find much to dislike in such car-oriented places, but they succeed for prosaic reasons, notes Mark Clapson, an urban historian. The landscape embodies the preferred Englishness of tidy homes and greenery. Milton Keynes now counts over 200,000 residents who have gardens, easy access to shopping, and convenient trains to London. Communities like this are home to a great diversity of people, with a mix of professionals, skilled workers, and manual laborers. Recalling his childhood in a South London suburb, the filmmaker John Borman asked, Was there ever such a stealthy social revolution as the rise of this semi-detached suburbia? The War on the Dream In most high-income countries, including Canada, Australia, and the United States, suburban living still predominates. 
Among Americans under 35 who buy homes, four-fifths choose single-family detached houses. A recent report from the National Association of Realtors found that over 66% of American adults, including those living in cities, prefer a house in the suburbs. Since 2010, a net 1.8 million people have moved away from the urban core counties of major metropolitan areas, mainly to lower-density counties where single-family houses are the norm. Despite the continuing appeal of suburbia, planners, academics, and pundits sneer at this lifestyle. The suburbs are about boredom, and obviously some people like being bored and plain and predictable, said Elizabeth Farrelly, an Australian urbanist and architecture critic. She continued, I'm happy for them, even if their suburbs are destroying the world. Farrelly is among those who argue for densification to create a green, global city, even though majorities of Australians, like Americans, appear less than enthusiastic about what critics describe as cramming. Some pro-density activists operate from a sense of moral purpose to oppose what is a clearly demonstrated popular preference. While environmental arguments are most common, some activists claim that single-family neighborhoods are inherently racist because they used to be overwhelmingly white. This notion has been central to the push against single-family zoning in cities such as Seattle and Minneapolis. Others dislike the very idea of property ownership and family privacy. Victoria Fierce of the Yimby pro-density lobby in California favors increasing urban density in part because it promotes collectivism. Of course, this is reminiscent of the orthodoxy seen in the late Great Soviet Union. In 1957, several architects from the University of Moscow set out to create a concrete spatial agenda for Marxism, emphasizing small apartments densely built near public transit with close proximity to the workplace. The plan of Alexei Gutnov and his team was later published in Italian and then English as The Ideal Communist City. Gutnov acknowledged the appeal of suburbia, but rejected it as unsuitable for a society that prioritizes equality and social control. Those who dictate the urban form today come from the clerisy, along with elements of the financial aristocracy who seek to capitalize on high rents. As the architectural historian Robert Brugman observes, urban planners have a long history of ignoring or even disdaining middle-class aspirations for a suburban lifestyle. He adds that the motive is often class-based, an effort to revive the patterns of the pre-modern past with defined hierarchies and limited opportunities for upward mobility or for improving the condition of those outside the upper classes. The attack on suburbia is, in effect, a way of socially deconstructing the middle class. Even as middle-income families are squeezed out of the urban core, planners wish to close off an alternative that majorities, in fact, prefer. Chapter 18. The Totalitarian Urban Future the new urban paradigm elevates efficiency and central control above privacy, local autonomy, class diversity, and broad-based property ownership. The same oligarchs who dominate our commercial culture 
seek to profit from manipulating our moods and influence the behavior of our children, want to structure our living environment as well. Major tech firms, Y Combinator, Lyft, Cisco, Google, Facebook, are aiming to build what they call the smart city. Promoted as a way to improve efficiency in urban services, these plans will also provide more opportunity for oligarchs to monitor our lives as well as sell more advertising. The smart city would replace organic urban growth with a regime running on algorithms designed to rationalize our activities and control our way of life. This urban vision appeals to tech oligarchs' belief that their mission is to change the world, not simply make money by meeting customers' needs and desires. In the urban landscape, changing the world means replacing the old physical and social structure with what the futurist William Mitchell in 1999 called a city of bits. Our former understanding of the city gives way to an electronically augmented environment where everything is determined by digital code. Mitchell prophetically foresaw that the high-tech metropolis would intensify the concentration of wealth in a few places. The digital city is perfectly suited to the neo-feudal order. A new class of urban serfs are forced into small apartments and work sporadically, often remaining dependent on subsidies or income maintenance provided by the state. Except for those who own or operate the technology or write the algorithms, people will become like bystanders in the computerized city, much like the plebeians in imperial Rome whose jobs were taken over by slave labor. Human beings will exist largely for the machines rather than be served by them. Bees exist on earth to pollinate flowers, and maybe humans are here to build the machines, said Andrew Hudson Smith from the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis at University College London. Urban robots are just starting to appear, and in 200 years' time, machines may run the urban form. The city will be one big, joined-up urban machine, and humans' role on Earth will be done. The Oligarchic Moral Imperative the emerging urban form perfectly fits the belief, shared by most top Internet founders, that growing inequality is inevitable, a natural cost of technological progress. Silicon Valley first grew out of the suburbs, but many tech leaders now believe that urbanization is a moral imperative, writes Greg Ferenstein. If startups and suburban garages represented the individualism of cranky inventors and entrepreneurs, the future Silicon Valley will feature densely packed apartment complexes for workers who will become ever more corporate and controlled. The focus on apartment living for employees makes some sense for tech companies like Facebook, Lyft, Salesforce, Square, Twitter, Yelp, and Google that rely on a youthful, childless workforce. This kind of urban experience does not spur individuals toward independent adulthood and family formation, but recreates life as close to the college experience as possible, as Ferenstein notes, or a kind of prolonged adolescence. With traditional family-friendly housing near their workplaces out of reach for all but the wealthiest people, most tech employees will live in something like dormitories, 
perhaps well into their thirties. Their salaries may be relatively high, but often not enough to cover the cost of a conventional apartment, much less a house. Adjusting for inflation, the average programmer earns about as much today as in 1998. But housing costs have soared too high for most to have a chance to break out of renting. Urbanists have argued that ever higher densities will reduce housing costs, though higher density housing in reality tends to be far more costly per square foot and also carries the additional costs of the regulatory burdens associated with many large cities. More housing might be built in urban centers, but it will almost always come at a high price and usually be too small for families. Meanwhile, most tech oligarchs themselves live in the Bay Area's pricey bucolic suburbs or have rural properties at their disposal. Such options may never exist for most of their own employees, particularly the younger ones. The Guardian characterized Google's move to build high-density units near its offices as well-wishing feudalism. Company town or dystopia? What will the cities created by our tech overlords be like? They certainly will not be like those of post-war America or Britain with their spreading suburbs, but more akin to the old company towns, such as Lowell, Massachusetts, built around textile mills, or the Pullman Company town in Illinois. Such developments have been sold as public-spirited accommodations, but they also offered a convenient way to increase control over employees and boost productivity. Perhaps more concerning is what today's tech oligarchs expect for their employees. Unlike the executives of the typical large firm of the late 20th century, they are not expecting their employees to aspire to buy a house and raise children. Instead, they prefer workaholic employees who embrace a modern version of monasticism. Firms like Google are planning to build cities suited to such workers, using their technology to create a version of Mitchell's City of Bits. In an undeveloped 12-acre portion of Toronto called Keyside, Google is spearheading a drive to build the city from the Internet up, merging the physical and digital realms. This vision of smart urbanism revolves around surveillance and relentless gathering of data. Ubiquitous monitoring sensors inside and outside buildings and on streets would be constantly on duty. Google would collect data about everything from water use to air quality to the movements of Keyside's residents and use that data to run energy, transport, and all other systems. Constant monitoring will no doubt produce some efficiency in things such as trash collection, but at an enormous cost to privacy. The data gathered from monitoring people's daily lives will also be fed into the advertising and marketing machine that generates the oligarch's fortunes. Meanwhile, the big tech firms will gain insights about urban life, including energy use, transit efficiency, climate mitigation strategies, and social service delivery, and sell the information to cities around the world. The whole point of a smart city is that everything that can be collected will be collected, says Al Ghadari, the director of privacy at Stanford University's Center for Internet and Society. 
Global Cities of the Damned. Canadians, Americans, and most Europeans still have the option of objecting to heavy surveillance and control, but citizens of many other countries, Russia, China, and African nations, may have less ability to say no. Data collection is totally unfettered in China's techno-utilitarian system, with no privacy protections for the individual. In its drive to dominate the next generation of artificial intelligence, the Chinese Communist Party works closely with tech oligarchs, both foreign and domestic, giving little consideration to public concerns. For example, if tech companies identify a district they want to turn into an innovative ecosystem, like Silicon Valley, they would need to wait for organic urban development to take place, writes Kai-Fu Li, former president of Google China. Instead, they can work with the government to speed things up by clearing out the inhabitants and brute-forcing the geographic proximity of the desired elements. The politically connected tech developer need not worry over much about the kind of opposition to development that often arises in Western cities. The Chinese Communist Party is clearly aware that artificial intelligence brings huge potential for controlling a city and its residents. China's large population of well-educated people and its enormous underclass both could pose challenges to the regime. The government uses technology in a complex social credit system to track citizens' activities and maintain control over all segments of the population. There's even an app that rewards people for reporting signs of dissent to authorities, such as illegal publications. Christina Larson, an MIT researcher, likens China's surveillance system to the electronic democracy that Isaac Asimov described. As she puts it, who needs democracy when you have data? In Maggie Shen King's novel, An Excess Male, the surveillance system has been totally integrated into all dimensions of personal life, including access to good jobs, an apartment, or the right to marry. Since the one-child policy, along with a preference for males, has led to a demographic crisis, the government pursues and punishes anyone whose behavior, such as homosexuality, might impede the production of desperately needed children something already much on the mind of Chinese planners and government officials. The Chinese regime has been implementing facial recognition systems around the country to track the movement of citizens, beginning in the Xinjiang region of western China, where Muslim Uyghur dissidents are seen as a serious threat to the regime. This is a place where simply wearing a beard or giving your child a Muslim name can catch the attention of police. The facial recognition system alerts authorities when someone on a watch list strays more than 300 meters from home or workplace, and that person could be arrested. Once an individual is caught up in the criminal law system, the chances of acquittal are estimated at less than one in a hundred. The regime is also aiming to collect DNA from every resident of Xinjiang and implementing a satellite tracking system for every vehicle in the region. They are combining all of these things to create, essentially, a total police state, said William Ni, a China campaigner at Amnesty International. But it isn't only Xinjiang province where the police state is growing. 
the government planned to deploy over 400 million surveillance cameras in cities across the country by 2020. Along with the facial recognition system, this surveillance is designed to regulate behavior, making it much more dangerous to express dissent or even to commit a minor violation of traffic laws. The regime is also tracking smartphones and harvesting biometric data. Brain-reading technology is destined to become more commonplace in Chinese factories, ostensibly to improve productivity, but also with a clear potential to monitor and manipulate the thoughts of workers. This kind of digital surveillance is likely spread to major urban areas in developing countries, many of which regard China as the ultimate role model. Given that many of these cities do not generate enough prosperity to improve the lives of their residents, it's not at all surprising that governments might find appeal in a technological approach to social control. Can we resist the surveillance society? What is now brewing in Silicon Valley and proposed in Toronto and being implemented in China could be the model for our future urban civilization. The British academic David Lyon sees the all-immersive data-driven city as part of a surveillance society where all individual activities are under the gaze of the ruling classes. These smart cities will prove to be essentially the opposite of the real thing, substituting machine-driven interfaces for the free and spontaneous human interactions that are the glory of the traditional city. Averting the arrival of this contrived and controlled urban form, or at least slowing its development, will require new measures to limit the power of the oligarchic tech companies and of the clerisy who promote their agenda. Europeans may be in the lead here, seeking to curb information monopolies and to limit intrusions into personal lives. EU citizens are being given the tools to erase personal data collected by tech services. Some people will no doubt see pushback against this smart city as a case of rejecting technology or impeding efficiency, or shackling free enterprise and seizing intellectual property. But for democracy to work, the citizens need to control their own environment rather than hand it over to a few powerful corporations or a small tech elite who profit by stealing our privacy and manipulating our behavior. Cities must be suited to human aspiration and not serve to nudge their inhabitants into a new kind of serfdom. Part 7. A Manifesto for the Third Estate Technology is perhaps the body rather than the soul of a civilization. Fernand Brodeau the Perspective of the World. Chapter 19, The Technological Challenge We are moving toward a future that most of us may not desire, with highly concentrated property ownership, a concerted drive for ever greater urban density, fewer families, and a declining middle class. The power of today's dominant classes is based on an accumulation of wealth and assets not seen since the emergence of the great industrial trusts in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In fact, the tech oligarchs often control 80 to 90% of their markets, 
surpassing the market share enjoyed by J.P. Morgan's U.S. Steel, which controlled two-thirds of America's steel manufacturing. As in the Gilded Age, this market dominance comes with grotesque levels of inequality. In Europe and North America, and increasingly in East Asia, we are seeing what Robert Putnam calls an incipient class apartheid. The main beneficiaries of our current economy lord it over the commoners in a way reminiscent of the medieval nobility. The new feudalism is like the older model, with class, privilege, and wealth still highly influential, writes Satyajit Das in The Independent. Experts and Problems The oligarchs and a privileged clerisy might be seen as fulfilling the role of a ruling expert class, as proposed during the Enlightenment and in the Progressive Era. The ideal of rule by experts presupposes a society in which all problems, including those of morality, faith, and justice, are thought to have scientifically derived solutions. It is simply a matter of finding the right policy, irrespective of whether it enjoys broad public assent or reflects popular aspirations. If the exercise of power in the Middle Ages was justified by force of arms or divine ordination, today's dominant classes claim their right to control our lives on the basis of supposedly superior knowledge and morality. Unchecked and unchallenged, they may brew up a dystopian future out of monopoly capital, intrusive technology, and coercive ideology. China, having been at the leading edge through much of history, may again prove to be the preeminent role model, representing an alternative to liberal capitalism with an advanced economy run from above and offering little in the way of individual rights or freedom of expression. The Chinese regime does not much respect personal privacy, and it unabashedly practices a strict censorship. This model is appealing to rulers of many other countries, particularly in the developing world and among autocrats everywhere. In democratic countries, the greatest threat to the independence of ordinary citizens comes not directly from the state, but from those oligarchs who are heralding what Amazon's Jeff Bezos describes, apparently without irony, as the beginning of a golden age. Yet the futurist Valhalla imagined by the oligarchy and the clerisy could be antithetical to democratic values and to the aspirations of the Western middle and working classes. As Irving Kristol wrote almost two decades ago, the fundamental problem is that technological and scientific elites have the inclination to think that the world is full of problems to which they should seek solutions. But the world isn't full of problems. The world is full of other people. Of course, he adds, there is no solution to the existence of other people. All you can do is figure out a civilized accommodation with them. Eroding the Real Technology adds to or enhances some human capacities, but it has limited ability to address some of humanity's biggest problems. Experts in fields such as artificial intelligence have been very successful at solving problems in circumscribed domains, such as a chess match or cataloging records. But when confronted with more complex problems involving emotions or nuance, Technological systems become brittle and mistake-prone, notes one leading computer scientist. 
many dimensions of human life are not reducible to digital code. You cannot code intuition. You cannot code aesthetic beauty. You cannot code love or hate, says Miguel Nicolelis, a neurologist at Duke University. On our current technocratic path, we can see a developing society much like that portrayed in Stanley Bing's chilling novel, Immortal Life. Set in the near future, it depicts a society where artificial intelligence has become dominant and life extension has emerged as the obsession of the ruling oligarchy. The world's richest man develops a technique for transferring his consciousness into the body of a lesser young person. The masses have essentially been neutralized by the availability of cheap commodities peddled by a handful of global corporations and are largely removed from any so-called real experience. While the oligarchs aspire to digital immortality, their technology renders the average human prone to inertia, indolence, and virtual existence. Technology itself may, however, be less of a problem than our dependency on machine interfaces, as opposed to genuine human interactions. According to Amazon, half of the conversations that users hold with the company's smart home device, Alexa, are of a non-utilitarian nature. Jokes, existential questions, groans about life. A study conducted by the Institute for Creative Technologies in Los Angeles in 2014 found that people display their sadness more intensely and are less scared about self-disclosure when they believe they're interacting with a virtual person instead of a real one. By 2022, it's possible that your personal device will know more about your emotional state than your own family, said Annette Zimmerman, research vice president at the consulting company Gartner. This emotional reliance on technology provides more opportunity for the oligarchy and the clerisy to gain access to our inner feelings and profit from them. No matter how strongly a public relations staffer at Facebook or Google contends otherwise, the algorithms that govern social media are not neutral or objective, but reflect the assumptions of those who create the programs. Algorithms are opinions embedded in code, writes Kathy O'Neill, a data scientist. The most concerning effects of the new intrusive technology can be seen in younger people. Research published in 2017 by Jean Twenge, a psychologist at San Diego State University, indicates that more screen time and social media activity correlate with a higher rate of depression and elevated suicide risk among American adolescents. Not incidentally, depressed youths are more susceptible to buying products pitched to them, as one Facebook executive famously told the company's advertisers. The influence of social media on the mood of users, whether by design or otherwise, has been called brain hacking. I am convinced the devil lives in our phones and is wreaking havoc on our children, said Athena Chavaria, a former executive assistant at Facebook and an employee of Mark Zuckerberg's philanthropy, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. The effects of digital saturation appear to be profound. Young people today have been found to be less assertive and more risk-averse than earlier generations. Many lack basic soft skills, such as knowing how to interact with other people. In Australia, researchers have found that excessive time glued to screens has resulted in a younger generation 
incapable of small talk, critical thinking, and problem solving. A survey of American millennials found that 65% did not feel comfortable engaging with another person in a face-to-face conversation, and 80% preferred conversing digitally. We may be witnessing a deterioration of the real-world human interaction that has always been fundamental to our species. For example, today's tech-savvy children clearly have problems relating to the opposite sex, a phenomenon traced in part to their immersion in social media and easy access to Internet porn. In America, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Japan, and the United Kingdom, younger people have been disproportionately contributing to what researchers have characterized as a sex recession. Artificial beings even appear poised to replace actual people in the most intimate of human activities. One entrepreneur invested in a sex robot shop to fill a perceived need for a safe space for men to practice healthy sexual interactions without the complexity of a normal human relationship. As the French novelist Michel Welbeck notes acidly, the price of improved technology appears to be a weakening of our capacity for real human interaction. The world is becoming ever more uniform before our eyes. Telecommunications are improving. Apartment interiors fill with new gadgets. Human relations become progressively impossible, which greatly reduces the quantity of anecdote that goes to make up a life. The third millennium augurs well. Wiring for Feudalism It was once widely hoped that emerging technologies would create a world of new opportunities for personal growth, adventure, and delight, as the visionary Alvin Toffler wrote in Future Shock almost three decades ago. The prospect of a technologically advanced economy dangled like a bright gem for generations of utopian socialists and for political thinkers on the right as well. Even today, some Marxists long for a fully automated luxury communism where technology has ended scarcity and created a post-work society. Sadly, such utopian visions can lead to frighteningly dystopian results. Technology may connect people in unprecedented ways, but it appears to be constraining intellectual debate under the control of a few powerful companies. The widespread censorship and de-platforming of unapproved views already being practiced, notes law professor and author Glenn Reynolds, could presage a new form of technologically enhanced thought control. The rewiring of society could be accelerated by an even more remarkable and somewhat terrifying biological transformation. For a half-century, scientists have been dreaming of engineering humans to limit reproduction or to transmit information directly into the brain. To many modern scientists, Huxley's Brave New World may seem less a dystopia than a blueprint for technological paradise. Eugenics, once discredited by its association with fascism, is now the ghost at the table as scientists aim to edit genes to produce a superior human being. Rather than simply serve humanity, biotechnology could enable ruling classes to engineer people to fit their own preferences. The philosopher Yuval Noah Harari believes that technology will usher in a society controlled by a small, godlike caste 
of what he calls Homo Deus, who will completely dominate run-of-the-mill Homo sapiens. Below them will be an underclass who don't work and depend utterly on alms from their betters. The relationship between them and the re-engineered elite beings could be compared to our present relationship with animals. You want to know how superintelligent cyborgs might treat ordinary flesh-and-blood humans? Harari asks. Better start by investigating how humans treat their less intelligent animal cousins. Armed with the power of algorithms to control our social interactions and with unlimited cash, our overlords will be able to run society for their own benefit without worrying about the popular will or the aspirations of their fellow citizens. The technocratic future now being envisioned will have little need for the labor of the lower classes or the messiness of democracy. A hundred years hence, writes Harari, our belief in democracy and human rights might look incomprehensible to our descendants. Chapter 20. The Shaping of Neo-Feudal Society All human systems, from the primitive village to medieval feudalism to liberal democracy, are shaped not only by ideas, but also by control of the physical environment and resources. Democratic systems rest to some degree on the recognition and nurturing of individual property rights. Most democratic or republican societies in history, in Athens, Rome, the Netherlands, Britain, France, North America, Oceania, were created and sustained by a broad, property-owning middle class. In the 20th century, middle-class asset growth was accomplished in large part by the expansion of an urban footprint beyond the city core that allowed many more citizens to buy property in spacious, safe environments offering a measure of privacy. The ideal of broadly dispersed property ownership has long been promoted by politicians both right and left in most high-income countries. A nation of homeowners, of people who own a real share in their land, is unconquerable, said President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He saw home ownership as critical not only to the economy but to democracy and the very idea of self-government. Today, the democratization of land ownership is being reversed. In the United States and across the world, more and more people are being pushed into living in rented apartments or houses, with little chance of gaining financial independence. This trend is not simply a product of market forces. Rented housing, whether apartments or single-family houses, has been heavily promoted by much of the oligarchy, and more so by the planning gurus of the clerisy, even though home ownership is favored by the great majority in the United States, Europe, Australia, and Canada. Given the high cost of dense development, future generations may well become ever more dependent on subsidies or affordable unit set-asides. An economy where most people rely upon wealth transfers from the lucky few cannot easily coexist with a tradition of individual initiative and self-governance. Undermining Familialism Perhaps no institution is more threatened by the neo-feudal order than the traditional family structure. Since 1960, the percentage of people in the United States living alone has grown from about 12% to 28%. In the Scandinavian countries, 
around 40% of the population live alone. Even East Asia is seeing early signs of a breakdown of family structures. Kyung Suk Shin's highly praised bestseller, Please Look After Mom, which sold two million copies, focused on the filial guilt of children over failing to look after aging parents. Rapidly urbanizing China, traditionally a bastion of familialism, now has 200 million unmarried adults, including 58 million single people between 20 and 40 years of age. The proportion of people living alone in China, once a virtually unimaginable situation, has risen to 15%. This phenomenon is particularly marked in the urban centers that dominate the world's economy and culture. Today, many large cities, such as Beijing, Tokyo, New York, Los Angeles, Boston, and San Francisco, are becoming childless demographic graveyards. Workers in San Francisco's tech economy, forced to live in small apartments or shared living arrangements, are unlikely candidates for parenting, and perhaps will never achieve what prior generations considered to be full adulthood. Perhaps it is not surprising that identity politics based on such things as race, gender, or sexual orientation have taken a strong hold in places with few children and weakening family ties. The prevalence of singlehood and the culture of childlessness are often portrayed as matters of choice. But as generational researchers Morley Winograd and Mike Hayes have pointed out, American millennial attitudes about family are not significantly different from prior generations, albeit with a greater emphasis on gender equality. Among American childless women under age 44, barely 6% are voluntarily childless. The vast majority of millennials want to get married and have children. A major reduction in childbearing may well be a blessing in some impoverished parts of the globe, but lower birth rates in higher-income countries will likely inhibit economic growth due to rapid shrinkage of the labor force. Already in the United States, workforce growth has slowed to about one-third the level in 1970 and seems destined to fall even more. The demographic transition is even more marked in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and much of Europe, where finding younger workers is becoming a major problem for employers and could result in higher costs or increased movement of jobs to more fecund countries. As the employment base shrinks, some countries have raised taxes on the existing labor force to pay for the swelling ranks of retirees. In certain places, the prospect of an inexorable depopulation looms. In Russia, between 1991 and 2011, around 13 million more people died than were born. China's working-age population, those between 15 and 64 years old, peaked in 2011 and is projected to drop 23 percent by 2050. This decline will be exacerbated by the effects of the now-discarded one-child policy, which led to the aborting of an estimated 37 million Chinese girls since it came into force in 1980. These grim statistics have created an imbalance between the sexes that could pose an existential threat to President Xi's China dream and perhaps to the stability of the communist state. Getting Beyond Dogma 
Given the likely effects of greenhouse gas emissions on the world's future climate, it will probably be necessary to change how we live, produce energy, and get around, even if such changes have significant economic costs. But this issue needs to be addressed rationally and with attention to other concerns such as economic opportunity and the maintenance of the middle class. As in the feudal era, genuine concerns about human sins and excesses can become excessively dogmatic and lead to socially destructive results. Climate scientists have long recognized that the Earth's climate is a non-linear chaotic system and that we lack the analytical tools to predict future climate conditions with much accuracy. Real and serious concerns, such as sea level increases due to rising temperatures, need to be studied in the context of complex weather cycles, whose fluctuations may not be as extreme as sensationalized reports have suggested. The oft-repeated notion that the science is settled is profoundly unscientific. Steve Coonan, former scientific advisor to President Obama's Department of Energy, believes there is well-justified prudence in accelerating the development of low-emissions technologies and in cost-effective energy efficiency measures, as well as various other means of mitigating the problem. At the same time, Kunin argues that well-informed public discussions on policy should not be sidelined. Like any serious challenge, climate change should be tackled with pragmatic measures that take the needs of human society into account. But some policies being implemented today, such as wide-scale wind power and battery-powered cars, may be less beneficial than promised, with unexpected costs and other disadvantages. The Paris Agreement on Climate Change appears to be having little effect, according to some observers. Draconian climate policies in California and Germany have managed to hurt the middle class and the poor while producing little meaningful reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Extravagant policy proposals such as the recent Green New Deal floated in the U.S. Congress would cost trillions of dollars for uncertain benefits and divert resources from other priorities, such as reducing poverty or cleaning the oceans. In developing countries, an agenda like the Green New Deal could have the unintended effect of entrenching mass poverty, thus creating more dependency, and could bring new risks to health and sanitation as well. Most people naturally support environmental protection and efforts to address climate change, but are generally not willing to give up a large portion of their income for those purposes, especially when the benefits are dubious. In the 2019 elections in Australia, a country widely dependent on fossil fuel exports, the sometimes over-the-top antics of the environmentalist group called Get Up were widely credited with moving voters away from the progressive Labour Party and toward the Conservatives. In Canada, Opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline project has led to a feud between British Columbia and Alberta, pitting environmental concerns against economic interests. Even in Europe, policies that reduce living standards for middle and working class citizens are not widely popular, as evidenced, for example, by the Gilets Jaunes uprising in France. Climate activists risk a widespread class based backlash as long as they fail to consider the economic dislocation caused by the policies they prescribe.
How we view humanity matters. Approaches to environmental concerns are often conditioned by our view of humanity. Austin Williams describes a conflict around the question whether humanity represents the biggest problem on the planet or the creators of a better future. The negative view is somewhat similar to the early Christian idea that humanity's sins were to blame for everything from inclement weather to plagues to defeat in war. Having a family, like engaging in commerce, was viewed as secondary to the state of the individual's soul. But there's one big difference. In most religious faiths, especially monotheistic ones, humanity is seen as the pinnacle of creation, for whose benefit all else was created, while today's environmentalists are inclined to regard humans as no more worthy of respect than any other creature, and perhaps less so. Climate change could well be a contributor to crop failures, hurricanes, floods, unusual weather patterns, or even war. But attempting to solve the problem by discouraging family formation or reducing living standards, as is often proposed, could have serious social ramifications, besides being politically unfeasible. One problem is that a Malthusian approach to demographics and economics tends to favor those who are already rich to empower the clerisy and generally to reinforce social hierarchy. Moreover, the measures taken by Western nations are unlikely to affect climate change much when virtually all the growth in emissions comes from developing countries led by China. Poorer developing countries also must accommodate the needs of large populations living in poverty and lacking basic amenities, such as adequate electricity or clean water. Globally, over one billion people lack reliable electricity. Leaders in countries such as India tend to be more concerned about the availability of energy than about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Investing in Resilience In order to find effective solutions to climate change and other problems, the environmental movement needs to give up utopian fantasies, writes Ted Nordhaus, a longtime California environmentalist, and make its peace with modernity and technology. Given existing technologies, the much-anticipated shift to solar and wind energy seems largely impractical as a way of cutting emissions without dramatically raising energy costs, reducing reliability, and increasing poverty. A mix of diverse options from nuclear power and hydroelectric generation to replacing coal with abundant, cleaner natural gas seems more likely to reduce emissions in the short run without catastrophic economic and social consequences, particularly in the developing world. The best approach overall may be to emphasize resilience in preparation for future climate changes of any kind, including those that may be induced by human activities. This idea is gradually taking root in policy discussions. Some proposals include more investment in coastal walls, a more decentralized power system, desalination plants, and better storage of water, as well as conservation to alleviate possible harms from climate change. And after years of opposition, some environmentalists now acknowledge that poorly managed forests in states like California must be trimmed to forestall massive firestorms. We can find inspiration in the example of the Netherlands, 
where catastrophic flooding in the 16th century prompted an extensive and successful expansion of coastal berms to prevent future floods. By contrast, failure to make on-the-ground improvements to mitigate risks contributed to the decline of ancient civilizations in Mesoamerica, the Indus Valley, and Cambodia. A more recent example is New Orleans, where the dangers of storm-related flooding were widely recognized, but the city's system of protective levees was not adequately maintained, and it failed during Hurricane Katrina. Floods are acts of God, but flood losses are largely acts of man, observed the geographer Gilbert F. White in 1942. Confronting the Iron Law of Oligarchy The current approach to reducing climate-altering emissions has succeeded in enhancing the power of the oligarchy and the clerisy, illustrating the Iron Law of Oligarchy. Articulated by the sociologist Robert Mickles in the early 20th century, the law says, the more complex the issue, the greater the need for elite-driven solutions that bypass popular input. In recent years, voices in the mainstream media have advocated the creation of a global technocracy that would preempt popular control and allow experts to implement policies of their own design. Democracy is the planet's biggest enemy, asserted an article in the establishmentarian Foreign Policy magazine in 2019. In this view, solving the climate problem requires an effort comparable to mobilizing for war, with draconian measures unlikely to gain secure approval from legislative bodies or the general populace. Undemocratic means would be used to impose limits on such mundane popular pleasures as cheap air travel, cars, freeways, and suburbs with single-family houses. This approach to the issue perfectly matches the Chinese authoritarian system of governance. China's top-down way of solving problems has been praised by some environmental activists, such as Jerry Brown, former governor of California, who favors applying the coercive power of the state to achieve environmental goals. A strong supporter of the Beijing regime's current climate policies, Brown even recommends the brainwashing of the uncomprehending masses, a concept very much congruent with the logic behind Chinese thought control. Chapter 21. Can We Challenge Neo-Feudalism? The hope that we might see a global convergence toward democracy, as was once predicted by Francis Fukuyama and Thomas Friedman, among others, seems increasingly remote. As China has grown both richer and more powerful, it has not become more like us, but instead has developed an authoritarian form of state capitalism. Globally, democratic governance appears to have peaked in 2006, and many countries, including Turkey, Russia, and China, have become far more authoritarian. Even democratic India and many European countries have seen their own constitutional order frayed by internal dissension and racial and religious divisions. China's civilization state, deeply rooted in thousands of years of history, represents the most profound philosophical challenge to liberal values since the end of the Cold War. 
Jorgen Randers, a professor emeritus of climate strategy at the BI Norwegian Business School, predicts a Chinese-dominated global future, despite the country's many environmental and other challenges. Western nations are not going to collapse, but the smooth operation and friendly nature of Western society will disappear because inequity is going to explode, Randers argues. Democratic, liberal society will fail, while stronger governments like China will be the winners. Even without the Chinese challenge, Western countries are already seeing more economic centralization, albeit in private hands. Over the past few decades, a small group of oligarchs like Warren Buffett have made vast fortunes by buying up businesses with little competition as a way to ensure monopoly profits. More important still, the technological elite, highly adept at manipulating the tax code for their own benefit, continue to consolidate power in critical market sectors, making themselves into overlords more influential and powerful than most governments. The Importance of the Third Estate How can those who believe in liberal democracy respond to the challenge of a rising oligarchy and clerisy? The nascent peasant rebellions in North America and Europe generally lack a coherent program to challenge the power of the dominant estates. All too often, they resort to a primitive nativism and cultural nostalgia that have little place in a 21st century democracy. The key to resisting neo-feudalism today lies in the same kind of people who brought the first version to an end, what the leftist sociologist Barrington Moore described as a numerous and politically vigorous class of town dwellers. In other words, people who tend to own some property, and often their own business, and who build communities around the needs of their families. In the late 18th century, such people joined with independent peasants to challenge the hereditary aristocracy and the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Later on, the working classes successfully restrained the predatory power and disproportionate wealth accumulation of monopoly capitalists in the Gilded Age. What is needed today is a new kind of politics that focuses primarily on fulfilling the aspirations of the Third Estate, on expanding opportunities for the middle and working classes. The current emphasis on social justice through redistribution and subsidies does not increase opportunities for upward mobility, but instead fosters dependency while consolidating power in a few hands. Off with their heads? Today's oligarchs are the people who have benefited most from free markets, protection of property rights, and the meritocratic ideal. But their arrogance and greed could provoke a backlash against their privilege. Consider the popular outrage over the recent college admissions scandal in the United States, with Hollywood and business elites cheating, bribing officials, and falsifying records to get their unqualified children into top colleges. Yet the oligarchy could be undermining the basis of their own good fortune. Much of the oligarchic class is allied with militant progressives whose basic agenda is hostile to classical liberalism and capitalist enterprise. This is similar to what happened in the run-up to the French Revolution when many French aristocrats not only lived dissolute lives, but supported writers whose polemics ended up threatening their own rights and even their existence, as Tocqueville noted. 
Up to now, policies advocated by the progressive left have come mostly at the expense of the lower and middle classes. But the new breed of progressives are growing bolder and coming to resemble the Jacobins of the French Revolution or the Red Guards unleashed during the Cultural Revolution in China in the late 1960s. In the future, young activists may not tolerate the oligarchy's excesses as did earlier generations of environmental campaigners. After all, if the world is on the verge of a global apocalypse and also suffering elevated levels of inequality, how can the luxurious lifestyles of so many of the world's most public green advocates, from Prince Charles and Richard Branson to Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore, be acceptable? The environmental left may well turn against the billionaires who lament climate change, but fly their private jets to discuss the crisis in places like Davos. The activists who are melding environmentalist green with socialist red do not distinguish between good billionaires and bad ones. Some, like Bernie Sanders, believe that billionaires should not exist at all. The red-green contingent generally agree with the view of Barry Commoner, a founding father of modern environmentalism, that capitalism is the Earth's number one enemy. Over time, our fashionably left-leaning oligarchs may discover that their apparent political allies and even their own employees are rebelling against them. While oligarchs give heavy financial backing to Democrats, some surveys indicate that more party members now support socialism than capitalism. There's even a growing socialist movement among tech employees in Silicon Valley who have little chance of replicating the wealth accumulation enjoyed by prior generations in the Bay Area. Unsurprisingly, some tech titans and Wall Street oligarchs are already making emergency escape plans in case of civil unrest. The Rebellion We Need To date, opposition to the neo-feudal order has all too often morphed into hatred of minorities such as immigrants, Jews, and Muslims, and a belief that the society is threatened by migrants from different cultures. Given the demographic trends not only in Europe, but also in North America and Oceania, such a xenophobic agenda is likely to be counterproductive and is incompatible with a liberal society that can successfully integrate newcomers into the national culture. Great societies are by nature expansive, not closed in. Rome became great, Gibbon suggested, in part because it permitted religious heterodoxy and provided outsiders, including former slaves, a chance to rise above their station. In contrast to Athens, where citizenship was restricted, Rome extended citizenship to the farthest boundaries of its empire, and by 212, all free people were eligible to be citizens. The grandsons of Gauls, who besieged Julius Caesar at Elysia, commanded legions, governed provinces, and were admitted into the Senate of Rome, wrote Gibbon. Just as diverse peoples found much to emulate in Roman civilization, the liberal institutions that developed in the West appealed to people from radically different backgrounds. These institutions and their underpinning ideals are not tied to any set of racial characteristics. Chinese, Muslims, and Latin Americans migrate mostly to countries that have embraced the liberal values of citizenship, tolerance, and the rule of law. China, under the autocratic Xi Jinping, 
may offer the Chinese dream, but the number of immigrants from China living in the United States more than doubled between 2000 and 2018, reaching nearly 2.5 million. Similar patterns have been seen in both Canada and Australia. There is little such movement to China or most other Asian countries. Those with the good fortune to live in pluralistic Western-style democracies rooted in classical culture should recognize how rare such open societies have been through history and how much the vitality of these societies is threatened today. Historically, democracy has been like a flame that shines bright for a while, as in Greece and Rome, and then succumbs to autocracy or ossifies into hierarchy. The Values Proposition Civilizations are fragile, impermanent things, wrote the historian Joseph Tainter. Amidst our civilization's long period of success and stability, we may not recognize that things are shifting dangerously until it's far too late. We are no more prepared for a regression to a less enlightened, less mobile society than the citizens of ancient Rome were prepared for the collapse of their empire. A civilization can survive only if its members, especially those with the greatest influence, believe in its basic values. Today, our key institutions, the academy, the media, the corporate hierarchy, and even some churches, reject many of the fundamental ideals that have long defined Western culture. Activists on both left and right, instead of emphasizing what binds a democratic society together, have focused on narrow identity politics that cannot sustain a pluralistic democracy. A loss of faith in the basic values of our society is particularly marked among the young. Nearly 40% of young Americans think the country lacks a history to be proud of. Far fewer place a great emphasis on family, religion, or patriotism than in previous generations. Europe is, if anything, moving faster toward cultural deconstruction by anathematizing its own heritage. The Paris Statement, put forward in 2017 by a group of scholars from several European countries titled A Europe We Can Believe In, says that the EU bureaucracy is invested in an ersatz religious enterprise based on post-nationalism and the rejection of a distinct historical culture in favor of multiculturalism. Given the high-level commitment to cultural deconstruction in Western societies, it isn't surprising that we are seeing decreased cultural literacy and a greatly reduced interest in history among the young. Maybe we won't quite see a reprise of the early Middle Ages when the very mind of man was going through degeneration, as Henri Pirenne put it, but we could be creating what Roderick Seidenberg called post-historic man, cut off from the traditions and values of our civilizational past. If one doesn't know the foundational principles of our democracy, including individual freedom and open discussion, one is not likely to recognize when they are lost. Regaining a sense of pride in Western culture and its achievements, while remaining open to newcomers and influences from elsewhere, is essential to recovering the ambition and self-confidence that drove the West's ascent from the age of exploration to the space age. Some scholars believe that Japan now provides a model for high-income countries that can dispense with growth 
and instead focus on spiritual or quality-of-life issues. Japan will not conquer the world, one observer suggests, but it could settle into being something like an Asian Switzerland with a rapidly aging but comfortable population. Similarly, the neo-feudal order would replace a focus on upward mobility and family with a desire for a comfortable, subsidized life, indulging in the digital mind sinks that keep the masses in their metaphorical basements. Already, Roughly half of all Americans support the idea of a guaranteed basic income of about $2,000 a month if robots put them out of work. A universal basic income enjoys even stronger support in most European countries, particularly among younger people. To slow or reverse neo-feudalism, with its constraints on upward mobility and creation of more dependency, requires awakening the political will of the Third Estate to resist it. Happy the nation whose people have not forgotten how to rebel, wrote the British historian R. H. Tawney. Whether we can muster the resolve to assert our place as engaged citizens will determine the kind of world our children inherit. This concludes the reading of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class by Joel Kotkin. Copyright 2020 by Joel Kotkin. This book was read by Traber Burns, a member of SAG-AFTRA. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with Encounter Books and was produced in 2020 by Blackstone Publishing, which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Publishing. If you would like to obtain a monthly update telling you about new releases, call 1-800-SAY-BOOK. That's 1-800-729-2665. For a complete listing of our titles, visit our website at www.downpour.com. Thank you. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.